you know, China has these uh, police, quote unquote, police stations in the various Chinatowns in New York and a couple of the other cities. What? Mm-hmm. what? I didn't know about this. Yeah, it's made made national news. What's up, guys? I'm here to tell you this episode is brought to you by CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a new, fast-growing, tech-enabled, well-capitalized, community-powered alternative to traditional health insurance. Founded by Andy Schoonover, a proven founder and entrepreneur with a successful track record, including a $100 million-plus exit. By the way, Andy's been on this podcast in the past. CrowdHealth uses the power of crowdfunding, member ratings, unlimited choice, and huge cash pay discounts to provide a simple, considerably less expensive solution to managing your medical bills. CrowdHealth gives you full agency and sticks with you no matter where you move or what jobs you take on. You've heard of Big Pharma, but you may not know, Big Insurance is actually the man behind the curtain. With 12 of the last 15 heads of the FDA taking jobs in Big Pharma and 64% of its funding coming from private industry, Don't hold your breath waiting for the government to save the day. It's safe to say our system's broken. It's time to take your well-being into your own hands, and CrowdHealth helps you do just that. You'll pay into your individual account monthly, and if you ever want to leave, you'll simply pay a $250 closing fee, and they will return the entire balance in your account to you because it's your account. Because it's crowdfunded, we all have a vested interest in each other's health. They even cover up to $300 a year in routine wellness visits. So far, for every $100 members have paid into their accounts, an average of only $30 has been paid out. So you can expect to see your money grow in your account over time. Take that, big insurance. Join today by visiting joincrowdhealth.com and using the promo code KLP to pay only $99 a month for the first three months. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code KLP. Joincrowdhealth.com, get you some. Well, thank you very much for this. Now we appreciate it. Thanks for inviting. Super stoked. Super stoked. I don't know why I'm so excited about this podcast. I think it's because it is something that I've been wanting to have someone on talk about for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And then when I found you guys, it was like I didn't, I don't think I expected to find quite this perfect of a fit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's start with uh, you telling everyone who you are and what you do. And then I'd like to hear a little bit of your your story and kind of how you got into doing what you're doing now. Sure. Well, my name is Shane Kerwin. I retired out of the military in 2018, and I started Personal Survival Solutions. Uh, Just looking for a fit, you know, as I transitioned out of the military and with some of the things that I did there uh, and some encouragement from other trainers and people that are in the industry, they were like, you should kind of do this. And so I did, and we got going, and out the gates as I retired, uh, I had like four jobs going at the same time. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, you know, the company going and then, uh, we got offered or asked, do we want to do the long range stuff for Barrett firearms out of Murfreesboro? And so I'd been friends with the Barrett family and, and the manufacturer for a while. So we were like, yep. So we were doing that. 
And then uh, somebody I used to work for in the Army has a crisis resolution and risk mitigation uh, company, and he was like, would you like to do some work for me? And I was like, yep, I'd, I'd like to do that too. <laughs> and uh, I started working part-time at uh, a firearms training place here in Nashville and was doing that for a little bit. And so I had a lot on my plate. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, doing all the things that I wanted to do when I transitioned out, because one of the biggest things that I was looking for is I've spent this whole life, you know, my adult life pretty much serving my country. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just give that up. And I'm like, I can serve in another capacity. And so that's why I started Personal Survival Solutions and did the other things. And we ended up, um, I guess it's about going on two and a half years now. About two years ago, okay. um, everything else, you know, we kind of parted ways with all you know, amicably and that and uh, jump back into this, you know, full time with both feet. And this is all we do now is really. Yep. Oh, cool. So now um, do they take care of you out of the military? It sounds like you were a career. You made a career out of the military. I did. Right? I did 24 yep. years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So are you because now hopefully someone who does 24 years in the military doesn't have to work after they retire, right? Like they could take, they, they're taking care of you for life at this point or no? Yeah. So, you know, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I got all my fingers and toes and all that and do pretty good, but, um, you know, I get a hundred percent disability from the VA. I get paid for 25 years for my pension, you know, out of the military. And so that's good. You know, I mean, it's good money. Don't get me wrong. Um, and if we really had to, uh, you know, we could live off that. And, okay. And it might be a little tight, but we, we could do it. You know, okay. you look at how you live in that. And yep. So, um, yeah, we could do it, but okay. this is just another avenue that we keep continue to give back. And yeah. so, yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is what, like, this is this, it seems to me like this is <clears throat> almost like a, a passion of yours. Like it's a center point of your experiences and your interests and, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, I spent 16 years in special operations. I was at the special forces group up at Fort Campbell. Uh, One of the the few guys, I mean, it used to be pretty commonplace, but then they changed it where I got up to the unit in September of 02 and never left. Mm. I was, I was very fortunate, uh, very busy, uh, but I spent my whole time there. I didn't have to go and, you know, change duty assignments and because a lot of times you'll go down and be instructors uh, down at the schoolhouse in North Carolina, uh, you know, or go other places. And and I got to do everything right at Fort Campbell. I see. Wow. Um, And for those watching, Callie is with us. (coughs) Callie's not going to be on the podcast, but she's sitting right here. So hello, Callie. Welcome. Glad you're here (laughs) because you guys had like an hour and 20 minute drive here. We did. And so Callie's riding along. And so that's... um, she may be referenced at some point, so we're glad you're here. Um, okay, can you tell us what what are the things that you do, at least most commonly, with Personal Survival Solutions then? Sure. Um, so we teach, you know, application of firearms for protective use uh, from pistols, rifles, shotguns. We do a little bit of long-range stuff because, uh, you know, I spent about seven years as a sniper instructor in my former unit. And uh, a lot of times that, that goes with preparedness as far as like in a hunting capacity. A lot of people will come and take it for that. Um, 
Uh, we have medical classes. We teach less than lethal OC spray. You know, most people refer to it as pepper spray. And then we just recently, this last weekend, got done with, we have uh, a class called the three-day arm protective measures. And that's kind of a little bit of everything that we do as far as going around as an armed citizen. Okay. Okay. So that would be, all right, so if someone has a concealed carry permit in Tennessee, but they want to be better prepared and have some training about how to use that, should they need it, they would they could come to you for three days. Yep, absolutely. Or they could oh, come to some of the other classes that are, uh, our classes for the most part, with the exception of that one, are, you know, a one-day format. Okay. And they're built into a series. So like for pistol, uh, we start off with, a introduction to protective pistol, which is kind of our novice shooter. It's a six-hour class. We go through everything from starting to build a protective mindset to um, safety, you know, universal safety rules, how to safely handle a gun, uh, the fundamentals and how to employ it. We go to the range and they get to shoot a little bit. And then we come back after the conclusion of the range and we talk about disassembly of your firearm, how to clean your firearm, safe um uh, storage of your firearm and then a little bit about the laws, you know, in addition to say somebody that has a concealed carry. Uh, so that's kind of the start. And then that, that moves them over into, if they want to continue down that path into covert protective pistol, which is a series of, um, uh, five classes, uh, from one, uh, through four and then uh, covert protective pistol applied tactics. Mm. And that's just building that system. If you're going to be an armed citizen and, and, you know, carry a firearm to protect yourself, protect the uh, people that you care about. Um, smoke it in the way, Kobe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put it on the other side. There <laughs> okay. we go. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, no worries. No worries. But, um, you know, to, cause what we're looking to do is when people come in, cause you know, one of the things when I retired and started the company was uh, there's a lot of military guys and nothing nothing against them, you know, but a lot of guys, they'll do a lot of the same things that they did in the military. So, you know, from where I came from, special operations, a lot of that, in my opinion, for the demographic that we're looking for, the armed citizen, it's not as applicable. I mean, the shooting part's the same, but the tactics and that. Uh, I looked at the demographic that I wanted to try and impact, and it's just everyday people that mm -hmm. are carrying a gun that want to be able to protect themselves and protect the people they care about. Uh -huh. And so that's what we've designed all the curriculum around. And that's what we focus on in our classes. And with that, because we have such a diverse uh, group of people that come out is I'm really big on people understanding the threats that are against them, understanding their lifestyles, where they go, what they have for a job and then we try and build an individual protective system around mm. them and their uniqueness. Oh, wow. Very <clears throat> cool. Oh, that's a great approach. Wow. Yeah. So you're teaching someone who does one thing kind of something and someone who does something completely different. Maybe you're teaching them a little something different. Sure. Yeah. And Ooh, I like that. Now, are you getting into that with the three-day pistol class or what, what sort of... Um, how much training would they have to be getting from you to like get that level of, of training? So pretty much as long as you have safe gun handling and like our first pistol class or from a reputable other place as a prerequisite, they can come into that and they get a little bit of taste of everything. Um, you know, kind of break down with the curriculum with the three day would be uh, we start off in the classroom on, on day one 
and we talk about mindset and spectrum of awareness and ways to avoid fights and to be able to de-escalate and not get in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then if you do, um, how do we, what we refer to as managing unknown contacts coming from a real good friend of mine, Craig Douglas, and a company that he has, uh, ShivWorks and the, the ShivWorks collective that they have together, which is several different guys and uh, managing unknown contacts, but dealing with people that come up to you, you know, and a lot of them, you know, hey, can I get a dollar? Do you got directions here? What time is it? You know, and, and a lot of times that's benign, but the criminal element also understands that. And so we teach them how to, how to deal with that. And then if we can't de-escalate that, um, just some very rudimentary, uh, you know, preemptive strikes, if it's called for uh, pepper spray or less than lethal with OC, and then, you know, getting into the firearm uh, and how to employ that. And then medical, because uh, that's one thing that we find is that uh, the shooting classes, for the most part, you know, they're, they're a relatively easy sell because they're, they're fun, <laughs> you uh-huh. know. People like to learn how to induce trauma, but it's as important, if not more important, to learn how to treat trauma. Sure. Because um, it's way more likely that, you know, we could be driving home or you could be going to the gym or something and you come across a car accident mm-hmm. or somebody that gets hurt. And so you're way more likely to, to use those medical skills mm-hmm. than the gunfighting skills. But in order to have a well-rounded system, uh, you know, you got to learn all of it. Mm-hmm. And so we continue on with that. And then we talk a little bit about um, uh, vehicle tactics and defense, so anti-carjacking, uh and then move into home defense and things that we can do to have a layered security in our home, early warning, uh, ways to just be prepared overall. And is this still that's the, still this is still a three day pistol training? That's still okay. just a three okay. day class. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then then we have a lot of you know classes. So what that does, and when I designed it, and when Callie and I put it together, a big thing that we were looking at was, and I'd been wanting to do this type of course curriculum for a long time. And uh, just really never had uh, the ability or the venue to do it up until recently. And I wanted—I looked at it as two different things. One being somebody comes in and they take that class and they're like, yeah, this is really, really good. I'd like to spend a little bit more time now that I've been introduced to medical. It really interests me. And so they come out and take our uh, Guardian Medical Essentials series, which is two you know, full day classes. Or, you know, they wanted to do more pistol work or vehicle stuff or something like that. So that, that was one aspect of it. The other one was somebody, because, you know, one of the things I realized early on when I started doing this, um, and even when I was active duty, I was doing some teaching on the armed citizen side through some various companies, is that training is expensive and it takes dedication, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, if you look at a course, whether it's a one day, two day, three day or whatever, whatever it is, is people I have to commit to number one, taking the class. So that costs some money, plus having the equipment, plus having, you know, the ammunition. They have to take you know, a lot of times time off of work, depending. And we try and have the classes on the weekends, but like the three day, you know, a lot of times they might have to take a day off of work on Friday. Is it uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Thursday, Fridays? Friday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Yep. Um, and then if they travel from out of town, you got to think about meals and, you know, and hotel and things like that. And so that's a big commitment for somebody. And, you know, there's somebody out there that needs training 
uh, but doesn't have a lot of money, can't go places. And so what I was looking at with this for the other aspect of it was if this is the only class somebody takes, I wanted to give them a little bit of everything so they could build their protective system. And with a little bit of practice, they'd be pretty well set up. Mm-hmm. That's the three day. That's the three day. Okay. Yep. Okay. And are you comfortable giving a price range on that? Because it will probably change in time, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah, no. um, For the three-day class, when we do it locally up by Wara at at, uh, Montgomery County Shooting Complex up in Southside, Tennessee, uh, it's $800 Mm -hmm. uh, for the three days. Our single-day classes, uh, you know, whether it's pistol, rifle, shotgun, or medical, any of the eight-hour-day classes, those are $250. Okay. And on the three-day, so... um, they bring in their pistol, of course. Mm-hmm. And how much ammo do you want them bringing? Uh, let's see. We have on that one 500. Got to ask 500. Boss. Okay. Yeah. What is it? is it? How many boxes is that roughly? It depends on the box, I'm sure. But is uh, So, you know, a box normally comes with 50. Oh, okay. And so a case of, of, say, whatever the pistol ammo would be would be 1,000. So it's a half a case. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow, I've not shot anywhere close to that in the course of three days. I can tell you that much right now. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's a, a pretty, it's fairly physically demanding uh, just because we're continuing on the go. Uh, it's also mentally demanding because as we continue through uh, the three-day and then also the adi- additional coursework, the different series, is we try and start to continue to introduce more realistic context. Okay. And so taking it from just out on a range you know, where we're under constraints and, uh, not, not that we do anything unsafe, but, you know, we live in this 360 degree world with people all around. And, uh, if you don't get it put into context or understand how things that you are doing fits in and are applicable Mm -hmm. to finding yourself in an encounter, uh, all we're doing really is running drills out there for people. Mm -hmm. And so as we, you know, continue on, there's, there's, uh, that realistic context, critical thinking, problem solving, you know, cognitive loading, uh, so that they can learn it there in a controlled environment that if they ever find themselves in an altercation, they're not trying to figure it out then. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. What is your most popular class or course? (sighs) Wow. Um, I think probably the one that we have the most interest in, we have a lot of people talk about the three-day class and, uh, that's relatively new. We've only started running that last year. Uh, but again, it's a big commitment. So I think probably our most popular classes are actually our rifle carbine classes right now. Um, although we're starting to see a sway towards the pistol stuff. Um, so they're, they're probably pretty close. Uh, but I think as, as people are watching and seeing what's going on in the world and uh, needing to be prepared until like Tennessee changes, whatever their laws are going to say, you know, it's, it's a concealed fire or it's a concealed handgun uh, for the laws. Uh, and we, we can't walk around with, with rifles slung on our back or anything right. like that. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, I think you will see more popularity with the pistol classes for I the see. armed citizen. Okay. And um, are you doing this at your – do you live there? Are you going to some place for this training? Where are you doing this? We, we have a home range. It's, it's relatively close to our house, but it's, it's not where our property is. I uh, see. It's about 12, 13 minutes away. Okay. And that's uh, where you're doing all the training. All the shooting happens there. Pretty pretty much, yeah. Okay. We, we do do a little bit of traveling and training. Um, 
We did uh, two pistol classes down at Outpost Armory in Murfreesboro, uh, owned by Barrett there. Uh, we'll be back there in June. Uh, we're looking at a couple other places local. Uh, we've done some some training uh, last year in Illinois. Uh, we go out to Kansas every year and, and do some training out there with a group. And uh, we're, we're looking to expand uh, and get different places just so we can – because uh, a lot of times people can't travel. Sure. You know, yep. so if we can get somewhere localized for them, uh, you know, then that, that works out for everybody. Are some people traveling in, though, for this? Yep, absolutely. We had um, this last weekend, uh, we had a couple come down from uh, West Virginia. Wow. Uh, wow. We've had people travel in from Texas and Arizona, hmm. uh, Kentucky, uh, Western Tennessee out by Memphis. So very cool. Yeah. And they're doing this because based on their assessment, you're the best option for them. Right. I mean, you're obviously not the only one doing this, but, and probably not even the closest if they're coming from West Virginia. Yeah, no, not but necessarily. There's something about your programming that resonates with them and they yep. make the trip and get training with you. Yep. Yeah, Very absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So it's, it's neat. It's been neat to watch it develop. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but for people that just want to get that, that website right now, it's personal survival solutions.com, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So can, can we hear a little bit about some of your experiences in the military that kind of prepared you for this type of training? Sure. Sure. Um, so I went in the military in uh, 1993, uh, enlisted in the army uh, went through basic training and all that for a 11 Bravo, just a basic infantryman, and uh, ended up over in Korea, and uh, which was kind of cool because my dad was in Korea. He served his time oh, wow. there. Okay. And uh, so that was neat. And I was picked up uh, for the DMZ Scout Platoon and uh, selected for that, which it wasn't much of a selection process. But oh, really? They said, you know, they had, of course, my uh, my file and that, and they're like, you were being, you know, possibly selected to go to this thing. And uh, so I did, and we were the, the only Americans at the time, or, you know, in a long time, doing counter-infiltration patrols against the North Koreans in the DMZ. Hmm. And so that kind of set the tone for my, my career, my time in the military, at then I didn't know it was going to be a career, but, uh, so I, I did my year there. You didn't expect that? I, I didn't. Or you just didn't know. I, I just didn't really know at the time. Okay. Uh, and so heck, you know, I was done with my junior year of college and, uh, studying criminal justice when I decided I'm going to join the army. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, so I did. And, uh, Korea was, was neat. And I came back and I went to airborne school coming back and I went to the 82nd airborne in, uh, in North Carolina at Fort Bragg and went back to a scout platoon, a reconnaissance platoon and, uh, did reconnaissance operations and, and some sniper stuff there. Uh, went to ranger school while I was there and then I uh, had a real short break in service and went right back and went back to the exact same unit, exact same scout platoon, exact same team, uh, all I did was switch positions. I went from the senior scout to the assistant team leader and just picked right up where I left off 15 months earlier. Were you well received by the team? I was. Okay. I, everybody knew me. And, okay. and so they were like, what took you so long? Okay, cool. And uh, so I did that and uh, up until 99 and I went to uh, special forces assessment and selection. And so I 
did that, and that was a three-week-long process where, uh, you know, a lot of physical and psychological and mental testing and, and uh, that go into the selection process. And uh, was fortunate, made it through, and, and got selected and got, um, got chosen because of test scores and aptitude scores and things like that to attempt to do the 18 Delta program, which is the Special Forces uh, Medical Sergeant program. And so I went and did that. I left the 82nd, went down and signed into the Special Warfare Center and uh, started on that odyssey for the next about two and a half years and uh, went through the medic course uh, and all the training with Special Forces, went through language school, went through the SEER school to survive, evade, resist, escape, and then uh, got done with all that and went to fifth group. And so when I got to 5th Special Forces Group in September, uh, got assigned to a team, uh, uh, ODA, an Operational Detachment Alpha. And uh, they were like, well, we're going to send you down to, to our in-house sniper course that was going on uh, within the unit. And so I did. I went down there. And, uh, you know, it was, again, another test because uh, they say one of the things in Special Forces is every day is, is a selection event. <laughs> or every day is an assessment. Uh-huh. And uh, so that was a six-week-long program for sniper stuff. And I did that and got done, and they sent me down, me and uh, another guy down to Fort Bragg in December. And uh, they said, yeah, you're going to go down and challenge the Level 1 course. Well, I was so new, I didn't even know what I was going to do. And uh, I thought I was going to some type of competition or something. And uh, what it used to be is if you went down, it was all the gated events all the things that uh, pass fail. And so it was two weeks and you went down and if you passed, you got a level one certificate, meaning, uh, you know, higher level of certification for, for the sniper stuff. And so I was successful there and uh, we came back and took a little bit of Christmas vacation. And uh, I'll never forget. We walked in cause this is all post uh, Afghanistan. I was actually in the medic course at Fort Campbell uh, doing my medical rotations in the hospital there when 9-11 happened. Okay, okay. And so uh, the unit had already been to, to Afghanistan and had been back. And so, uh, yeah, we went on Christmas vacation, Christmas leave, and uh, walked back in the team room on 5 January. They said, hey, pack all your stuff up. We're going to Kuwait and invade Iraq or potentially invade Iraq. So uh, so we did. We packed everything up. Uh, we what went, year was that again? Uh, that was uh, 03. Okay. Yeah, so we left in January 03 and then, uh, you know, spent some time in, in Kuwait and the buildup and everything. And then, then we were there and kicked off for the invasion and stayed through OIF-1. And then uh, I rotated back for OIF-2 and OIF-3. And uh, apparently... Uh, just because of the way the awards go, I was there spanning OIF-3 through OIF-4. So they gave me another little kind of like cool little thing to stick on my uniform or whatever. But uh, so so that was a pretty busy uh, like four, four and a half years. Uh, I was gone about 10 months every year between deployments downrange for OIF uh, coming back and doing individual schools and team training and then going right back into the sandbox and, and doing deployments. So uh, I was getting kind of wore out. And uh, that cyber school that I went to originally uh, when I got to the unit, I would went down and talked to them, and they'd never had a medic who was also sniper qualified as an instructor. 
so we were able to talk through the chain of command and that. And uh, um, I ended up down there as a sniper instructor. So uh, got to teach there, got to also interact with the different unit members that were coming back that, you know, were they're doing OIF rotations and talk to them and build, continue to build the program. And uh, uh, so I spent quite a bit of time down there. And where is this again? Uh, it's up at Fort Campbell. Yeah, okay. So it's, it, at the time, it was the 5th Special Forces Group SOTA Committee, which stood for the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course, which is just a real fancy word for, for sniper stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they call it CIFSIC Level 2, which is a Special Forces uh, Sniper Course. And uh, so I was a regular instructor, you know, just a general instructor there. I ended up being the senior cadre, and for a little bit, uh, they let me run the whole course. And uh, so that that was pretty neat. We were able to implement some things there, uh, coming back from different deployments and lengthen the course uh, to seven weeks and and really continue to give back there. Um, and then during that time, as I was, uh, you know, teaching at the course, I also got approached and asked to do some teaching with armed citizens on the on the civilian side, if you will. Mm. Very, very cautious when I say that because I, I, when I retired and, and I referred to people that weren't in the military as civilians, uh, I got some, some, some dirty looks. and From civilians? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Because I guess it's a derogatory term to some people. Okay. As in they're just a civilian? Yeah, which uh, okay. it just differentiates between the military. You know, somebody sure. that's in the military and somebody that hasn't been. But, right. Um, but I started referring to people as armed citizens mm. and it made a big difference as in they got less offended. Yeah. Yeah. Like okay. they were, you know, they thought that that was really cool. Like, okay. And I'm like, but it's a very applicable term, you sure. know, for, for people that come to our classes. Cause like you've made the decision. Number one, you're, you know, you're a citizen of the United States. Um, now you've chosen to take on the responsibility to arm yourself mm-hmm. and get training and practice with it and take the responsibility of, you know, protecting yourself and the people that you care about, be a good member of community. I'm like, so you're really an armed citizen. Uh-huh. And yep. that really means something. Yep. Yep. And, um, wow. Wow. That, I mean, good grief. You have so much experience. I got a little bit here a and there. A little bit. Yeah. Do you miss it? Um, I was actually on post today and I went by, by my old unit, just driving by and, uh, I miss the team. I miss the guys. Um, I don't miss it overall, you know, okay. the politics and, you know, the, the, the army in general. And, um, we're close enough, you know, that we're, we're still around it. We don't live too far away. Uh, but I've been, you know, in September, I'll be retired five years and, uh, it's a young man's game. I'm not young anymore. So I leave it to them. I, you know, keep up on this stuff, but, it was a chapter in my life, and it got me to where I am now, but it doesn't define who I am. It's just part of part of my, my life and who I am. That makes I sense. Was, you know? And at what point in this journey did the two of you meet? Actually, I was in the process of retiring when, uh, well, right before, was that? <laughs> yeah, but right before I was retiring, but towards okay. the end of my military career. Okay, so we okay. wonderful. Yeah. What do... What did you learn as a sniper that you didn't expect to learn going in? Or maybe, I guess what I'm real curious about is like, how does a sniper look at the world differently than 
people who are not snipers? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times people misunderstand, you know, the whole sniper community as far as uh, like what their job is. You know, we see a lot of things where, uh, you know, whether it's in movies or televisions or even documentaries that shooting is the big, big thing with being a sniper. And don't get me wrong, that's part of it. Um, but your intelligence gathers. You have to be able to observe. You have to have good awareness. You need to be, pick up on little subtle things uh, because others are relying on you for that, you know, that intelligence or that information. Uh, the shooting's just a very small part of it. Uh, all the other stuff that goes into it, you know, movement, camouflage, that those observation skills, that intelligence build and being able to relay that back. Um, that's what really makes the job, you know, uh, important, but also difficult. And it's not for everybody. Um, because it's like I said, it's not just the shooting part. That's a big part that makes, you know, or a small part that makes up a lot of other things, you know? And so, um, but I think like the observation part, and uh, I think is important and it helps with awareness and things with what we do now, mm -hmm. you know, between that and the other, other things that I did while I was in the military and, and doing it, you know, concurrently while I was in the military on the armed citizen side, because I was doing that, uh, you know, while I was teaching the sniper stuff. And then I was also teaching medical and, and pistol shooting and, and rifle shooting on the armed citizen side. So uh, that mindset, uh, awareness, uh, all those things transfer over mm -hmm. and which is just really neat, you know, to be able to impart that on people. Is, is it, I, I have to assume this is the case that snipers are somewhat like a good pilot, which is you need someone with some patience, high level of situational awareness, kind of a smooth, steady hand level mind. Yep. Like you don't need, you know, you, you don't need the, young gun trying to prove something flying airplane. You know what I mean? Sure. And I would assume the same with sniper. Yep. Okay. Uh, you know, there's, there's certain attributes that they look for in it. When you open up any sniper manual, whether it's a, uh, an army sniper manual from the conventional side or special operations or the Marine Corps, uh, you know, sniper manuals in the, in the front, they have certain attributes that they're looking for. And now granted, they're not going to fulfill all those or just because you don't have them, doesn't mean that you know you can't go into that job but they're they're attributes that they've seen that lead people to success that you know patience maturity good physical fitness uh you know ability to critical think you know higher intelligence ability to work uh alone or in small teams all these things that you know that lead to good snipers mm -hmm. and um so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the there's a time and a place for guys or or, got, or personalities for guys that are the door kickers and CQB and blowing stuff up. You know, that's all part of it. Um, most of the time, it doesn't transfer over to that patience and ability for the sniper to lay out there for you know multiple days. Yeah, and and gather intelligence and may or may not get to shoot or you know and bugs are crawling on you and you're cold and you're hungry and all that. Yeah. Um, if you're somebody that's amped up all the time, might not be the profession for you. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So I wanted to sort of have kind of three main buckets here for conversation. I want to talk about personal defense just out and about, and then also home defense. Sure. And then, and then third kind of general preparedness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Cal and I were, we were t exchanging, you know, info when I emailed you and, 
I let her know that this is something I was wanting to, this conversation is something I've been wanting to have for some time. And then a week ago, Friday, was that just a week ago or was it two weeks ago? It was a lot, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, Friday, power's out. And man, one of my friends in White's Creek, the power was out Friday noon until either Monday night or Tuesday. Crazy long. Yeah. Um, I thought it was bad when the power went out here late afternoon and came back on at 9 o'clock Friday night. <laughs> or 9.30. Um, but uh, I think it was also something about being home alone. My wife was gone. My two oldest sons were gone. I'm here. You know, the kids are... And also I was, I think it was just the state of mind I was in too. I was like, you know, sometimes it's easy to get a little distraught about the direction of the world and even this country and all of that was happening all at the same time that the power was out. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the backyard in the chair and I just, you know, every time the power goes out, first of all, I realize how unprepared I am. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's happened every single time the power's going out. Um, but that's really what prompted me to just reach out to you. I mean, the next day I got all of my guns out. I checked all of my ammo. Like, <laughs> what do we need to buy? And I have a list of what needs to be bought. I, I had one extra rifle that I thought we didn't have. So that was a pleasant surprise. A bonus. Uh, huh? Exactly. Yeah. So it was almost like there was just like a stirring in my spirit, I guess, that I was feeling Friday night. That's why I reached out to you. Um, but let's start with personal defense. Like, what are the things that you're thinking about for the the average civilian, armed civilian who's out and about? What are the things you want them thinking about in terms of personal self-defense as they go about their day-to-day? That, you know, so that's a good question. I think, and that's where, you know, you start too. So one of the things that we start whenever we're in our core classes or the beginning part of, you know, taking a step down this path to personal protection, um, we start talk about mindset, you know, developing a good protective mindset, uh, you know, doing some evaluations, you know, what is our own individual threat assessment? Uh, Because everybody's lives are different. And where we live, what we do for jobs, who we associate with, where we go, um, you know, we can watch the news, read the newspapers, uh, get a kind of an idea of what are the threats that are out there and what might be encountered. And then that kind of gives you an idea where you're going to go as we start talking about training and that. But, but developing a good protective mindset, asking yourself some hard questions of uh, what are you willing to do to protect yourself, protect the people that you care about, be a good member of your community, whatever that is. You know, it can be your family unit. It could be your tribe, you know, your you know friends and family. It could be the community at large. Um but just developing that mindset of as we see these different things, the power going out, uh, you know, the ice storms that we had, uh, COVID, various things, um, we have to understand that when you dial 911, fire, EMS, law enforcement, uh, they just don't materialize. Uh, you have to be able to take care of yourself and be able to take care of the people that you care about for at least a limited amount of time. Because uh, you have to be your own first responder. Well, you really do. And I don't want to distract from where you're going with this. But if I can interject, one of my friends is a Metro cop. Mm-hmm. And the things that he has said a couple of times about who's on duty, where, covering what amount of square mileage. Yeah. Is shocking. It is. It's like, I, I don't even really want to know that. 
Well, and along those lines. <laughs> I mean, it's like, let's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's not what people might think. Right. Oh, yeah, I know. And, and they can only be one place at a time. Well, and I tell people, I'm like, you know, do you know what your response times are if you call 911 right now? And some people do. A lot of people don't. How would don't. you know that? Uh, just call a non-emergency number for fire, law enforcement, you know. Uh, and ask them? Yeah, just ask them. Say, hey, I live at, you know, this address. What is, you know, your basic response time? You know, and it'll be kind of generic. Again, it depends on where the officers are in relation to us. But Oh, I didn't know that's something you can do. Yep, absolutely. You can really? call them up and just ask them. But all they're going to be able to do is give you a, hey, things are going pretty well in general. There's no crisis downtown or there's no, nothing big is going on. The world is as it usually is. And you personally have a crisis. They can give you an answer to that. Yep, they can but give you a generic. stuff time. really hits the fan, all yep. bets are off, right? Absolutely. But what that does is it gives you kind of an idea. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. A buddy of mine, uh, you know, he lives in Nashville, uh, pretty, you know, popular area in that. Uh, he's called a couple times for different incidents that have happened when nothing else was going on. And the response time is like 30 to 34 minutes. Oh, okay. So they're going to give you the response time at that point in time that you call, or they're going to give you an average response time for your house location. They're going to give you an average response time. And so 30 to 40 minutes. So if someone's choking, they will have died. If someone's, I mean, bleeding out, you're in an altercation, your house is on fire. Yep. Um, But what that does for us is when we, we find those things out and we kind of understand the threats is it helps with our planning process. And so, uh, you know, how long do I have to hold out until the cavalry comes, you know, and I get kind of an idea and then we can start building that plan. Cause if we look at things, you know, a lot of people I think don't prepare because it's overwhelming. Yes. That's how I, yes, I resonate with that. Yep. And so, you know, how can we make this in manageable chunks for us to start planning and start getting prepared uh, and not feel overwhelmed. And so, you know, that's that's one of the things that, that you can do, developing that mindset, understanding what the threats are, and then looking at, hey, what are what are my options? You know, what, what can I do? Where can I get training? Uh, what do I need to do? What's, you know, deficient in my home? Uh, you know, when I'm going out in the world, uh, and if something happens, do I have the ability to protect myself? And, and that could be a variety of things from just having – Uh, a good verbal recording uh, to de-escalate, getting our hands up, you know, having something that we've practiced and rehearsed to say, hey, when the guy's coming up and and, and uh, closing the space between us and asking for something, get my hand up and just saying, hey, no, I can't help you, Mm -hmm. you know, not presenting an easy target to somebody. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by a personal recording? So, you know, think about, and I'm sure you've probably been approached by somebody when you've been out. Mm -hmm. Hey, do you got a dollar? What time is it? Can I get five bucks for gas? I ran out of gas. Um, like I said, most of the time when people approach us like that or they encroach on our space, uh, they just want a dollar. They want to know the time. But the criminal element also knows this. Okay? Um, they target you for whatever reason it is. If we can have you know, good confidence and good proper you know, protective mindset, maybe we can be deselected. But if they still select us and they come up, being able to get my hands up, you know, just a a barrier, a non-threatening barrier between me and them and just having something that you've practiced that you say to them, you know, 
no, I can't help you. Hey, can you stop right there? Uh, I don't have any time, you know, for you. Something like that that we've practiced and rehearsed this verbal recording. Uh, when someone approaches us and we're surprised and we're shocked and anxious, uh, fearful, uh, you're not going to come up with something witty at the time. Sure, yeah. And it doesn't really matter what it is, you know, what that verbal recording is. Uh, it's a little bit different for everybody, but it could be as simple as, no, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it kind of draws a, a, a line in the sand saying that I recognize that you're coming up. No, I can't help you. And, you know, you need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that is timely. I What I found about myself is that I tend to think less optimistically, maybe even somewhat negatively, ne- negatively about humans as a whole. Mm-hmm. S- but I, I tend to give individuals the benefit of the doubt. Sure. You know, and I think that is, that's fine for the most part, you know, 9.9 times out of 10, that's probably great. Mm-hmm. But I think I can see that as maybe a little bit of a personal weakness too. Should someone be coming at me trying to veil, veil what their true intentions, intentions are yeah. that I may, I may get caught off guard a little bit more maybe than some, because I do tend to give individuals the benefit of the doubt. Well, and I, I don't think that's uncommon. So, you know, and again, you know, I, I keep coming back to developing that good protective mindset Uh, But one of the things is, is just like, you know, you said is uh, we give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, whether it's society and school uh, mentors, uh, that intuition that we're born with, those spidey senses, the hair on the back of your neck stands up, whatever butterflies in your stomach, whatever you want to call them, uh, we've been told to ignore those or push them down. They're there for a reason. They've been there for eons. And the thing of it is, is uh, if we ignore those, we sometimes get in situations that we could have avoided if we would have recognized and, and paid attention to those feelings that we have. Um, all of us, because, you know, we want to try and give people the benefit of the doubt because uh, we, we don't want to live in a society where it's like, well, I can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard. It's callous. Uh, but when it comes to our personal protection, our personal safety. Uh, we have to sometimes be a little bit callous. And uh, what I hear sometimes from folks, and, and especially with, with females, um, but males just as much too, is sometimes we let ourselves get into situations, even though it's telling us that, hey, this doesn't feel right because we don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings yes. and be wrong. Well, when it comes to, you know, comes to that personal protection, it's okay to hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know you're the one that's responsible for yourself and responsible to go home to the people that care about you because they expect you to come home. Yep. But now, what about the the thing of you escalating too quickly? Because that I wonder if that's sometimes a concern for people too. Sure. Like if you do get a little bit confrontative, because mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to unnecessarily escalate the situation. So how do you think about that? Well, so. You know, part of it is study and part of it is is training and practice. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about in classes is understanding the, the criminal paradigm or the criminal element that's out there. Um, how fights happen. You know, these pre-assault cues, things that will show that, hey, uh, this is getting ready to kick off. 
I need to be able to recognize them because they're there regardless. Um, you know, if you ever watch, you know, a YouTube video or something, or like the knockout game that you see, um, if you watch the people that are getting ready to punch, there's indicators that they're getting ready to throw that punch, for example. Um, so those are things, though, we have to be able to see and recognize them, number one, so we can protect ourselves. But at the end of the day, number two, if we do protect ourselves, we have to be able to articulate our actions and why we did what we did if we end up in a quarter law or if law okay. enforcement shows up. Yeah. And that's whether, you know, I, you know, talk forcefully to somebody and maybe hurt their feelings or it escalates and I preemptively strike and punch them in the nose or whatever the case may be, or I pull a firearm out or OC spray and have to use it. I break things down uh, between the pre-fight, the fight, and the post-fight. Pre-fight is going and doing training and practice and, and all those things so that if we find ourselves in an altercation, whatever that altercation is, that we come out on top and we get to go home to the people that, that we care, uh, that care about us. The post-fight, which is as, it's as important, if not more important, is after we do that action, uh, law enforcement shows up or, you know, they're called. Uh, can you articulate why you did what you did? Can we prove that, hey, I was in the right because they met this preamble, whatever it is, uh, for the actions that I took and that anybody else listening, a, a jury, go, I would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to live with yourself, your family live with you for the actions that you've taken. Uh, you know, we're if we get sued, you know, how is that going to, you know, um, how are we going to deal with that? So uh, when we're building this protective package, uh, it's not just the physical stuff. It's the mental aspect at the beginning, building the right mindset, having the physical aspect of it to be able to do the things that we need to do and then be able to articulate on the post aspect of it of, hey, I did this, but this is why I did this. Yeah. But in the moment, you want people trusting their instinct, right? In the moment, you really don't have time to think about how you're going to explain this to a jury. Right. But we can do that in the training portion. That's why it. the training is important yep. so that you can sort of follow your instinct in the moment. Absolutely. Okay. So like if you go, you know, and you get your handgun carry permit or your concealed permit, depending on which one you get here in the state of Tennessee, uh, they teach you the laws. Okay. What is the preamble uh, for me to be able to draw my gun out and, and use it? or, you know, deadly force, uh, means intent and ability, um, playing that what if game, you know, if they do this, I'm going to do this and, and kind of working out that action plan prior to thinking about these moral and ethical decisions, mm -hmm. uh, that you have to make before you find yourself in the incident so that you know that when it's time to act with instinct through training and practice that you're in the right. Yeah. And yeah. You know, and that's an important aspect of it. Like I said, it's just not shooting or it's just not learning to punch and kick. Yep. It's all these other things that go along with it. Yeah, there was two instances that happened recently in Nashville. One was in Green Hills of all places, which Green Hills is like a really kind of more expensive part of Nashville. Yeah. And there was a, a lady jogging, I think in her low 20s at like 11 p.m. and she had headphones in, which is like, eh, that's that's probably not a good idea, right? It's, yep. it's dark at 11. That's to it. jog by yourself with headphones in is probably not not good. No. Um, so there was an altercation there. She wound up, I think they tried to rob her and she wound up getting away, but she got shot in the leg or something. She escaped with her life, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But the one that was, this was very close to home. So 
it was very close to here. It was in the afternoon. There was a young mom pushing her baby in a stroller out on a jog. And a car came by and then came back around. And she was, like, aware, which was good, and yeah. stopped in front of her. And I think, no, they, they hollered something out the window at her about how good-looking she was or something like that. And then, and then stopped in front of her and got out. Mm-hmm. And immediately when they got out, she yelled at them, like, super loud, very like she escalated sure her her instinctual response was get back in that car you effing you know i have you know stop saying this get get out of here like she escalated quickly and they got in their car and left Mm -hmm. and you know we were talking about that my wife and i later because you know we both grew up in the country Mm -hmm. and you know, if someone stops by, they probably just need some directions or, you know, they need a little help or, you know, and, and also, you know, we grew up kind of before even there was cell phones, you know, like sometimes people did need to stop and ask for directions, but it's important, I think, to note, like, this is a different day absolutely, and this is in the city. And, and I think it was a little more obvious because of what they were saying or, or whatever, but I guess I just felt like her response was about as good as it could have been in the moment to sort of just escalate quickly and it worked. Yep. And you know, you said it right there when you talk about how they, you know, they drove by and then they circled around, they came back and then they started saying, those are all indicators that they're doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, situation dictates where we need to go with say a verbal recording. What we normally teach is, you know, we'll ask somebody, then we'll tell them what we want them to do. And then we demand. And when we get to that demand portion, normally I'm going to something else. I see. Because they haven't, you know, if I, if you come up and say, hey, you know, can you give me this? Say, can you stop right there? You know, or give me a little bit of space. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just stop right there. Um, If they keep coming, you know, and now I tell you, I need you to stop right there. And I, you know, get more aggressive and I elevate my voice. Um, Hopefully they stop there. But if they don't and they continue to come, well, now I've asked you and I've told you, and now I'm going to demand what I want you to do. My voice is going to be extremely raised. I'm going to be aggressive. But I know that the other stuff isn't working, and this probably isn't either. So I'm going to something something else, you know, whether it's um, a preemptive strike, if you know how to do that, uh, oh, you know, a less than lethal, you know, pepper spray is a great thing with a little bit of training. Uh, because it dissuades a large percentage of the population, mm-hmm. um, you know, or if it gets lethal and the preamble for that is met, uh, then, you know, go into a firearm. And then at any time, too, you know, if we can disengage, that's ideal also, get get out of there. Um, but going back to your example, um, sometimes the situation dictates where we got to go zero to 100 right away. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like that was the, the perfect approach for her because – as we raise our voice too, you know, when she's out, what does it do? It draws attention to exactly. Her. Yeah. You know, what are the, th- what are the tools, I guess, that people can be thinking about for personal self-defense? I have, um, our oldest to be 13 this summer and he's fit and healthy and runs around the neighborhood. And a lot of times his, his, his brother are with him too. And, and they're with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't let them like run around by themselves. Sure. Uh, and certainly not after dark, but I got him a, uh, I just went on Amazon and got him like a personal, I just, I, I don't know much about this stuff. So I literally just Google like personal self-defense knife. Mm-hmm. So I got him this little knife with a, a sheath that he can like 
strapped to his ankle or have on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so a knife would be a thing. You mentioned pepper spray. And then, of course, there's the, the concealed carry. Are there other things that people can be thinking about to have in their vehicle or on them? Should that be needed? Well, I think, you know, a big one, because one of the things, you know, going going to your example there with a knife, uh, you know, a lot of people look at a knife as, uh, yeah, it's, it's good for personal protection, uh, but that is a lethal force, you know, implement. So you can't just cut somebody a little bit, just like you can't just shoot somebody a little bit. Right. Um, so just, you know, people need to keep that in mind. Uh, my big things when we're talking in classes and we're building that individual protective system is, uh, you know, awareness, good mindset, understand, having your cell phone, know when it's appropriate to call 911, uh, letting people know where you're at, uh, maybe pinging your location, uh, then it goes into having some sort of less than lethal option. Uh, pepper spray, you know, OC spray seems to be the go-to. Uh, what is be- OC spray? Uh, OC? That's, just, that's the just the actual name for pepper oh, spray. Okay. Oleoresin uh, capsaicum. It's the active ingredient in pepper. Everybody just calls it pepper spray oh, gotcha. or mace. Um, because it works on, you know, about 85 to 90% of the population uh, with no detrimental effects to them. You know, they might think that they're, you know, they can't breathe or they're never going to breathe again or go blind or that they're going to die, but it wears off in 30 to 60 minutes. Okay. Now, are you saying there's a 10 to 15% of the population that doesn't have much of an effect with? Well, there's some folks that it don't. Uh, there, There's a very small percentage of people that it just doesn't have an effect on. Uh, there are some people in excited delirium, uh, certain mental disorders, or people that are on certain drugs uh, that it doesn't have the have an, that effect on, but the large majority of people that uh, you would use it on, it'll it'll work. Okay, if someone's on PCP, would that be one where it wouldn't have much an effect on? Yeah, it doesn't have much effect on them. Okay. Um, and so you know, with that, all these things that we carry on us, and then as we go up, you know, uh, edge weapons, uh, which would be lethal force. Um, less than lethal an example would be uh, a baton, expandable or non. Uh, here in the state of Tennessee, you can carry a baton. Uh, you just need a four-hour certifying class. Really? Mm-hmm. Expandable or non? Mm-hmm. You have to have... Wow. That's interesting because then the question is, what defines a baton? Like, can you carry a stick? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it, it, you know, we could look at the state state definition. I yeah. mean, if you picked up a, you know, a stick on the side of the road, is that a, you know, a... Uh, self-defense tool of opportunity. Um, if I remember correctly, you know, it, it's either a fixed baton, something that is designed to be a baton, or the expandable ones like, say, ASP or some of the other companies that are there that you give a flick of the wrist and they expand okay. out to a certain length. Would that be something that people should consider to have around or have in the car? Or I guess I don't naturally think of a baton being that helpful, but... I assume there are situations where it is. Sure. I mean, law enforcement use them. You know, they carry expandable batons on, on their belts. Uh, there's a lot of debate back and forth for their efficacy and what they're, you know, how, how well you can use them. Um, that's why a lot of times in, we lean towards the OC pepper spray just because with a baton, I have to get close. And so, but with pepper spray, there's standoff, especially if we pick the right dispersion on it, uh, whether it's a stream or a fog or something like that. Uh, but we can get the appropriate one where we can keep distance, uh, which is good because as long as I can stay away, 
And the one thing that's good about the less than lethal, the OC spray, pepper spray, is it helps us create opportunity. Because mm-hmm. if we can not escalate or not get in this fight, if I can use something to create opportunity for me to disengage, as long as something isn't keeping me there, say a family member or, or somebody else, I, I want to be able to get out of there. OC spray allows us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, with any of those, though, especially the less than lethal, um, we can't 100% rely on them. We have to have a plan B. Because mm-hmm. what if I can't disengage? What if they're one of these people that uh, it doesn't affect? Or maybe they're just tough and can fight through it. Uh, what am I going to do after? Mm-hmm. And that's why we're so big on on building this protective system where we have all these different options. It's not exclusively of either have nothing or just a gun or, you know, I have all these other options in between that I've trained with and it, you know, one flows to the other, you know, I talk, I try and deescalate that doesn't work. You know, I can go to a less than lethal or if I say I don't have less than lethal at the time, I have some rudimentary combative skills or protective skills there. Uh, if, they meet the preamble for lethal force. I have options that are there. Um, they're just all tools, and we have to understand where they fit into things. But uh, if we don't have training, we don't have a system, then then we can't can't employ those things. So that's why you know training is so important. But understanding this uh, this escalation of force, mm-hmm. you know, law enforcement has a use of force continuum. Uh, it's very applicable to us also. Uh, and, it, and it's a good good basis for us to go off of from, you know, can I de-escalate? Can I use a verbal recording? Can I go to less than lethal? Do it, you know, I haven't been able to resolve that situation, so now, you know, I might have to go to lethal and, and be able to flow in and out of that depending on how the situation develops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the having, okay, so like pepper spray, for example, that I guess I would have naturally thought of pepper spray as something like that women should definitely be carrying in their purse. But if, if someone is carrying a handgun, maybe they don't need pepper spray. But that's not what you're saying. You're mm-hmm. saying it would be a good thing to have as a preamble, and if that works, great. And then if it escalates, then eventually you're getting to that concealed carry. And sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, how about then concealed carry? I was recently with um, a friend in a small town, and he had a really nice – Sig Sauer with the, he had the clip in obviously, and then it had like another clip beside it and it was, it was a holster in the small of his back. It looked like a good, it looked like a really good setup mm-hmm. and he carries a lot. And, um, the next day I was also sitting in the backyard. This was not <laughs> when the power was out. This is another <laughs> instance, but, um, for f- some weird little reason it hit me. I think it was because it was like a country town mm-hmm. and, um, it hit me like back in the days of like the Wild West, you carried mm-hmm. what you did. It was the world you were living in. You carried. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, at least in this setting, in this town, is that the world we're living in? And I just didn't know it. How do you think about that? Do you think this is the world we're living in where you should be carrying? Well, I think yes. <laughs> you short, do. short answer, yes. Here, Here's the thing. Um, so... You know, with all of us, like I said earlier, one of the things that we initially go into is uh, everybody doing an individual threat assessment. 
you know, it's kind of something that, that I took from, you know, my military time and adopted it to this, but, you know, cause everything is different, but, um, you know, we can, we can fall into or think about, you know, Hey, I'm in a small town somewhere. Uh, nothing really ever happens here. And, you know, we can look at statistics and statistics, you know, are great for our, our training and planning and equipment we buy and things like that. But you know, one thing that's bad about statistics is we can have all the statistical data. They don't mean anything when something different happens. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, statistically speaking, you know, most of us, uh, are never going to encounter violence. You know, we're never going to be, you know, robbed or, or shot at or try, somebody try to stab us or something like that. You know, despite what the media and <laughs> that want to make us think. But when today is our day, um, you know, that statistical data doesn't mean anything. And, you know, bad folks that, that come and try and do harm to us, unfortunately, we don't get... Uh, you know, an email or a phone call or carrier pigeon smoke signal, however it is y'all communicate, uh, saying that, hey, today's going to be the day. Uh, we just don't really know. And, and it's important to, uh, to be prepared for that. And, and, you know, I'll tell people all the time, we're not trying to be paranoid. Uh, we just want to be prepared. And that, that, you know, gives confidence. And, you know, if we never have to use any of the stuff that, that, you know, we train people for, uh, or that you go out and practice with, that's great, you know, and, and we hope that that's the way that it goes, but hope's not a really good strategy. Yep, yep. So you do think we're just living in the world where it is prudent to carry? I, th I think it's important. If, if you take the responsibility of uh, the people that you care about and, and yourself, which that's a big thing too, um, I, th I think it's important. You have to have a way to, to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it seems to me at least this is one area where I think it was also different in upstate New York. I do think less people carried in upstate New York. Sure. Um, where I'm from, and then more people carry here in Tennessee. And um, But, you know, people conceal their carry. And so you don't, you don't see everyone who's out carrying a gun around. Sure. And, and, you know, I've not been in the military and there's like a zillion things you need to be focused on in life, you know? And, and it's just, I think it's just one of those things where it hasn't been that top of mind. And then I have though, more recently bumped into more people that are carrying. And I don't think they started to carry. They've just been carrying and I didn't even know it. Sure. I'm realizing more people are carrying. Yeah. And then after that experience in this small town and just thinking, wow, what if, what if, actually the world we are living in and you should be carrying. And I just haven't caught on to that yet. That's not something I want to be late to the party about, sure. about knowing, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so you would suggest that if people are at least willing or up for it, that they should be carrying or, or have one with them or in the car. So, you know, I highly encourage people. If you, if you're serious about, you know, your personal protection and taking care of the people that you care about, uh, you know, a firearm is a good option, but building a system and with that getting training, because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in the state of Tennessee here, you know, we've got some, some pretty, pretty good gun laws across the board, but we've got the handgun carry permit. We've got the, the concealed carry permit. It's an open carry state. We have permitless carry now recently. Um, and those are all great things. Uh, 
but just because you can strap a gun on because you're of age and, and you can legally do it doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. Um, you've got to have some training with it. And, you know, we're, we're big advocates of that. Um, knowing when, you know, you can employ a farm to protect yourself, protect people, you know, around you, uh, where all the laws, you know, to keep you in the right. Cause like I said, you know, you also have to think about that post fight part mm-hmm. that if you did use this firearm, you know, and I still come out on top, but I end up in prison, you know, for 20 or 25 years, did I really win? Yeah. And, um, so, uh, we think, you know, and we're advocates, of, of training, we think that's extremely important. Um, but if you take that step down the path of personal protection, uh, then we think it's, if, you know, a gun is a, is a big part of that. In addition to the other things that we've talked about, um, getting good training, going and practicing and, and having it on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, uh, the, the gun, it's, it's uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, I, I only carry it if I think I'm going to need it. And, uh, you know, my response to that is, is it's not supposed to be comfortable. It's supposed to be comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is, if I know that I was going to need it, I'm not going to go to where yeah. <laughs> where that's going to happen. You know, that's a good point. I'm going to stay home, or that's I'm going to take a bunch of my you know former special forces brothers yeah. uh, with me. You yeah. know, and maybe a tank or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we don't get to choose the time and a place. Yeah, yeah. Really Anything don't. else you want to say in terms of personal self defense? Um, I said I think you know just like we, you know, I keep circling back to here is, uh, you know, develop a good mindset, develop a system, uh, get some training. And then, you know, once you get a little bit of training, dedicate a little bit of time to practice every once in a while. Okay. Yep. Kobe, I hate to do this, but, uh, I have to pee real bad. (laughs) Can we edit it later? Okay. All right. And we're back. Um, okay. Uh, home defense. Mm -hmm. What do you think about for, what do you, how do you think about home defense? What are the pieces that should be in play? So when I look at home defense, I look at it as a layered approach. Uh, starting out at wherever your property line is, or, you know, in this case, like we're here, the street and working, working in. Because just like when we're, you know, about, out and about in our day-to-day, uh, you know, we want to have confidence. We want to have a good uh, spectrum of awareness or what a lot of people call situational awareness, looking around head up, you know, things that can, we could be deselected, um, you know, cause criminals are looking for an easy target most of the time. Um, you know, there's a small percentage that, uh, they don't really care, but by and large, they're looking for an easy target. Um, it's the same thing when we start talking about home defense. So, you know, if I can have layered security, early warning, uh, make them select somewhere else, uh, whether you like your neighbors or not, you know, if I could have them go to my neighbor's house and not sure. break into my place, uh, you know, that I'm all for that. Um, whether you have signs in that, you know, um, that that's all dependent on where you live, you know, cause again, we do that analysis. Uh, but like I'll say for us, for example, you know, our house sits way back up the road. We, we live in a rural area, but it, but it starts at the street and we have uh, a driveway alarm, you know, set up far enough that, uh, if somebody hit comes and turns around in the driveway, it's not setting it off. Okay. Um, but we know when somebody's coming up the driveway, it's like a ding or something. Yep. A bell? Yeah. It's, it's just like a doorbell, you know, it breaks a, a, a beam, uh, an IR sensor beam 
and you know puts a chime off in the house. So so we have that. Um, we have cameras outside the house. We have motion sensor lights. Uh, you know security systems. We have you know the signs that say ADT or uh, you know simply safe or whatever it is. All these things that that can kind of be a deterrent. Uh, for somebody that might want to encroach into the house or try and break into the house, I uh, that's a little bit more effort than I want to put into it, and I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, you know, the motion sensor lights, uh, you know, at night, if somebody comes up, they hit the motion sensor light, you know, it lights things up. They don't want to be seen if they're trying to, trying to break in. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you have the security cameras. And just to touch on that, when I was a kid, for some reason... This was like one of our favorite things to do with my cousins. This was before we could drive. We were probably like 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And I had a cousin in Indiana and I had one in Pennsylvania. And the three of us were roughly the same age. And every time we were together at one of those places, we, we couldn't drive. But they had friends or people they knew within, you could walk there. Mm-hmm. And, and it took a little time sometimes. I mean, I think there was one point we were walking like a mile or two to, to sneak up on some of these friends. But... um for whatever reason, we like to sneak up on people and peek in the windows, and it's just a dumb thing you do when you're 14 back in the 90s. Sure. But um, the two things that were the worst were dogs and motion sensor lights. Yep. It was like if the buddies had motion sensor lights or dogs, it was going to be a rough night. Otherwise, dude, you could <laughs> literally walk up to someone's house and peek in windows, and they would never know. Yeah. Never know you were there. It's ridiculously easy. Um. And this was kind of before, like, you know, everyone had a security camera, but motion sensor lights and dogs were a pain in the butt. Yep, and dogs are a part of it, too, you know, and it doesn't really matter what what they are. You know, they could be a trained, you know, attack canine, or as long as it's a noisemaker, you know, it's it's something. Motion sensor lights are going on. You hear the the cameras, you know, make a sound that that pick on the dog is barking, uh, you see that there's a, a sign there that says they got ADT security or whatever the case may be. It's all deterrence that says, hey, you know, I maybe want to go somewhere else, you know, or as a kid not peek in the window because right. I'm going to get caught. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, in this case, it's just getting caught by, you know, yeah. law enforcement or, or yeah. maybe the homeowner. But, uh, you know, so we do all those things to try and keep them from wanting to to get into the home. You know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, during the daytime when they think you're not there, uh, you know, for a burglary where they want your stuff or it's, uh, you know, late at night or the middle of the night where they want to come in and, yeah, they want their stuff, but they want, there's other ill intentions there. Um, You know, the ring cameras, the nest, things like that now that you can talk through, whether you're home or not, uh, they're they're great. Uh, You can have that, but then... You know, if they do decide to try and come and get in the house, you know, having having good routines. Okay, um, you know, when I was in the military, they spent a lot of time and effort and money to to train us to do a lot of things. Well, one of them was, uh, you know, lock picking and surreptitious entry and how to get into places. And uh, you know, so we learned how to be criminals essentially. Um, you know, but so we can use that to our advantage when we're overseas and, and doing things for the for the greater good. But, uh, you know, as we're practicing this, uh, most of the time we would get into places just by going around and checking windows and doors because people, if they don't have a good routine, leave things open. Yes. Yes. And I remember from personal experience, it is surprising how many people leave windows unlocked. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And, uh, you know, because especially like second floor windows, you know, so they're like, well, it's a second floor. I can leave it open, you know, or unlocked. Uh, but then they have a ladder leaning up against their, you know, uh, garage or, you know, the, their barn in the back or whatever. Well, I can get in, I can throw the ladder up against the house and climb in the window, you know, or I walk around back and, and, you know, they leave the sliding back door open all the time, open it up and now I'm in the house. So, you know, having a good routine where, you know, if we're in the house or just like when we're out of the house, make sure everything's locked up, you know, and now I'm not saying, you know, it's a nice summer day. You turn, turn the air conditioning and heat off. You open up the windows cause you're home and you have these other things, you know, you've got your dogs sure. and, and, and alarms and cameras and things like that. But, um, cause you still got to live your life at the end yep. of the day, we still got to live our lives, uh, prepared, not paranoid. Um, but having good routines, you know, especially when you, you, when you go out or when you, um, you know, go to bed at night or just getting into that routine. If you go outside, come back in and lock the door. Uh, cause you don't know, again, you don't get to pick the time and the place. Somebody follow you in. They can't get in the house if the door is locked. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some things that we can do to reinforce the home. Uh, we don't need Fort Knox again. We got to be able to live our life. And then we also look at that threat assessment that we do see because for the most part for all of us you know normal people uh nobody's after us uh -huh. and you know i think a lot of times we think uh that you know somebody's going to be after us stalking us and that may or may not be the case depending on you know there, there have been stalkers on people and that but when we do that assessment we realize that ah eh, you know i'm uh, nobody's really after me but i still want to be prepared if somebody decides that hey i'm going to pick that house or that person that day. Um, so, you know, having good quality locks, um, windows are, are an easy way into a house. You know, it's easy to break. We could have super high quality locks and doors, but if we got windows, um, simple things like uh, 3M security film, you can get off Amazon, goes over your windows, turns it into safety glass. Oh, um, You know, is a, is a cheap, cheap and easy fix you cover the whole window with it yep do you give them the windows no, i'm sure they just send you a, a sheet of it and then you cut out what you need and put yep. it on the window you can get it in a roll um you know different sizes different lengths of the rolls um then you just cut it out you put it on on the glass and uh and it pretty much turns it into into safety glass hmm. so again you know we want to think of things like response times you know how long do i need to be secure here before the cavalry comes, you know, law enforcement, uh, you know, fire EMS, things like that. Um, we can do that. We can change the screws out in the doors, like around where the locking mechanisms are and where the hinges are. Because if you ever look at how a door or how a house is built, um, all the screws are about that big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. And so, you know, it's a real simple fix. I can pull out, uh, especially where the locking mechanisms are on the door, um, but the hinges also pull those out and put a, you know, two and a half or three inch screw. So it goes into the frame. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to have super high quality, uh, you know, security locks, but you do want a security type of lock. Quickset and Schleg are the two main ones that are out there. They both make security locks that don't cost that much money. And I'm not worried about people picking locks into my home. I'm worried about just a good deadbolt that can that's in my in my house then 
you know, an alarm system that goes along with that, whether it's a, you know, Wi-Fi based system, a wireless system, a hardwired system, doesn't really matter. Again, having sensors on all the doors and windows, uh, arming that system. You know, a lot of people have security systems and they're like, well, yeah, I have a security system. It helps knock off on my homeowner's insurance and all that. Uh, but they never, never turned it on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, using that, building that into the routine that, hey, I'm in the house, everything's locked up, security system's on. You know, when I leave, everything's locked up, security system's on. Um, if they get past all that and they get in the house, um, you know, having a plan of action, uh, having a safe room, uh, you know, designated area, a lot of times people designate their, their master bedroom. Now, again, everybody's situation is a little bit different. Uh, you know, you've got kids. Uh, I'm sure they're probably all over the place. They don't sleep in the same room. Uh, so, you know, some, something you have to think about. You could, you could make the, the master bedroom your, your safe room, but if the kids are everywhere else, it kind of defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but having those plans and rehearsing those plans, um, you know, I don't know how your house is laid out, but just say, for example, your master bedroom's on the main and the kids are all upstairs, you know, having a talk with them and going, hey, if something happens, you know, you hear the alarm system or I holler out, you know, whatever we deemed is this code word. Maybe the oldest one grabs the kids, puts them all in one room, locks the door and, you know, barricades the door. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, appropriate time to call 911. Um, you know, going through the house, going through a structure by yourself or even, you know, as partners, you know, you and your wife, uh, is, is can be a pretty dangerous thing. Now, again, you know, with kids uh, or somebody that is somewhere else in the house, uh, we might have to do that to get between the threat and the people we care about. But if we can cannot do that and have a good plan where we can have ourselves locked down for an appropriate amount of time until law enforcement can respond, that's ideally what we want to do. Um, and then we're in rehearsals of those things, you know, just like we would do, uh, you know, fire, fire drills with the kids. You know, hey, if you smell smoke, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, running through rehearsals, that if this happens, we're going to do this. Uh, if we can't do this, we're going to do this, you know, and it doesn't have to be crazy, but we just every once in a while want to refresh those things in, in our, you know, our heads and, and in their heads, what, what we're going to do. So when it's two o'clock in the morning and the alarm system's going off and you're half asleep, but all of a sudden you get this, get rocketed with, uh, adrenaline and cortisol and these other chemicals you get in our systems, uh, you know, sometimes we don't think clearly and making it up on the fly doesn't always work for us. Yeah. Especially if you get woken up. <laughs> this was when we lived in Mount Juliet, but one night at 1 a.m. there's a cop at the door knocking <clears throat> and I went out, turned the light on, opened the door, forgot the alarm system was set. So I opened the door, set off the alarm. It's 1 a.m. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. The guy's dressed like a cop. Mm-hmm. That's all I know. So I'm pulling out my phone leave the door open to turn the alarm off. Thankfully it was actually a cop. Yeah. And, uh, and everything was fine, but a kid had wandered away from a birthday party and they found him. But, um, mm. it, when that happened, I was like, wow, I, I was fast asleep. And then I just lost my mind. Like, first of all, I didn't even like confirm that the guy, I mean, I did everything wrong in that situation. Sure. So because I just didn't have, I never thought about what I would do. And in the spur of the moment, it was like 
you're waking up and you're disoriented and it's loud and the alarm's off and completely mishandled it. Yeah. So the preparation thing just seems super key. Yeah, that, you know, just having a plan and, and going over it every once in a while is important. And, you know, you bring up a good point as far as, you know, opening the door. Um, COVID changed a lot of things. A lot of people are working from home. You know, some have gone back to work. A lot of them are still home. But, uh, you know, we, I get this question asked, and we, we address it in our home defense classes, is, you know, what do you do? do you, if it's somebody that isn't expected knocking on your door, what do you do? You know, a lot of people just go open it, and you know, especially if it's during the day. You know, um, not that bad things don't happen at night, but at night, you know, if somebody comes knocking at the door, it's you know ten o'clock. We're more apt to slow up a little bit, think about why is somebody at my door at ten o'clock, and you know, maybe ask them who they are through the door, or you know, turn the light on, look through the through the window, what have you. Um, but if it's at three o'clock in the afternoon. And somebody knocks on your door, a lot of people don't think, well, I wasn't expecting anybody, but let me go see who it is. And, you know, our, our advice is on that if they're, if they're not, if it, you're not expecting someone. Now, I'm not talking, you know, UPS or the Postal Service or somebody dropping off a package. But if, if somebody comes to your door and knocks on the door and you're not expecting it, and you don't know who they are when you come up and look out the window, don't open the door. Okay. Um, you know, the rings and the nest, those and the security cameras where you can you can talk through them are great because you don't even have to be home. Uh, you know, you can ask them what they want. Uh, if you're there, same thing. You know, you can you can speak through that. Um, some people will say, well, I just won't won't answer the door. Then if it's somebody I don't know, I won't answer the door um, and pretend I'm not there. Well, that's not a really good plan either, because um, it's been proven here and, and right here in Nashville, they've you know, interviewed some, some burglars, people that, that, that break in and they'll go right up to the door and knock, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you answer the door, you know, of course they have something that they're going to say like, Hey, is John here? No, John doesn't live here. Oh, sorry. I got the wrong address. And they're going to go to another house where there's nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if they're, you know, home invader, somebody that has ill intent, uh, they want to just get you to open that door. Yep. Um, or that burglar, if you don't answer the door, then it's like, okay, this might be the house. Yep. You and know? they're coming in and now you have a bigger problem. Yep. And now you, you know, you're in there and they didn't expect it. And that leads to other, other things. Yeah. And this is another thing I see too, where it's like, it's a good sort of wake up call for me, which is you're saying, look, man, this is also the world we're living in. If someone comes to your door at 3 PM, it's not UPS. It's not FedEx. It's not Amazon. It's not the mailman. It's not anyone, you know, you don't recognize them. You're saying do not open that door. Yeah, nope. which to you, you might be thinking, well, of course, man, come on. But like this is this is like if someone would have came to my door this afternoon at 3 p.m. and knocked on it, I would 100 percent have opened the door. Sure. Absolutely. You know, because I don't want to be rude and giving them benefit of the doubt. And also, I don't know, just the way I was where I was raised and how I was raised, like. You open the door, someone's at the door, they need help, you know, but that's not the world we're living in right now. Well, and that's the thing too, because, you know, there's been instances where people have come up, like, uh, I know one specifically, uh, young girl comes up, you know, bleeding and all this, hey, I was in a car accident, you know, can you open the door? I need to use your phone. And it's a ruse, you know, bad guys are in the bushes next door. They're using that person to get you to open the door and then they bum rush in. Now, you know, go with that and, you know, 
situation dictates what we do. You know, you have that intuition. And if you learn to listen to it, you know, and somebody comes to your door, say at three o'clock in, in, in the afternoon, you know, it's a young girl or, you know, a young kid or something, and you're not getting that weird vibe, spidey senses. I'm not saying, you know, uh, you know, not to open the door anytime, but I want you to think about, I, I want you to think about the things that can happen, uh, and, and let that situation drive what you do, but just don't automatically go, well, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and you know, there's somebody, I don't know them, but they're probably, they look like a good person. So I'm going to open up the door and get yourself in a situation that you don't need, need to be in, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, what do you need? You know, through the ring or through the door, uh, my car broke down or no problem. I'll call the sheriff's department. Just go sit in your car. They'll be there. Mm-hmm. No, can I come in and use your phone? No, you can't. No, you can't. I'll call the sheriff's department for you. You know, um, again, having plans and, and rehearsing those plans, just even just thinking about it, sitting down and thinking about, hey, if this happens, I think I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And they're generic plans, but what we're doing is we're developing this kind of mental mind map, this mental Rolodex of an experiential base through playing this what if game of if this happens, I'm going to do this. And then as I get more information or I find myself in that situation, gathering more information, we can make good choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about two things. One is, uh, like a military grade. I don't even know if this is a thing, but like a military grade flashlight or like a flashlight that's so bright, it's sort of blinding. Mm -hmm. Is that a good idea to have at least one of those in the house? There you go. <laughs> uh, high output flashlight that you can have in your house. Or, can or, I take a picture of this? Hey, you absolutely can take a picture of that. Do you have this on you at all? Do you have one too? She does Is too. it the same brand? It is the same brand. Okay. Um, sure I got that. Yeah, I did. Yep. yep. So this is a, a Streamlight. Yep. Macro stream USB charger, it looks like. Yep. You pull the end. You can plug it in USB. Uh, they've got ones that are... Uh, you know, off of batteries and that. Oh, gee, burst. Yeah. I was going to say, you might want to watch it. That's, that's bright. That's a bright light. Wow. Do, do you? Holy cow. That is so bright. Look at that. <laughs> so, um, all right. So this has a setting you just press and hold. Yeah, it's got where you can just uh, press and release if you need it, or you can press and it'll click and stay on constant. Okay. Okay. So do you keep that on you at all times? I carry it in my pocket all the time. Um, and, and not just for quote unquote tactical situations or whatever you want to call them. Um, I use a heck out of this thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit older. You can see, I need, need reading glasses and that. Um, if there's not a lot of ambient light, uh, I need my reading glasses plus a little bit of light. Uh Uh, but it's also, uh, we were talking about less than lethal options. Uh, I can use this to blind, disorient and distract. Uh, to create opportunities for me to do other things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ideally to disengage, to, you know, walk away from that situation. Yep. Um, the the size that it is and the way that I pick it is it's also long enough. I could use it as an impact weapon if I needed to. Okay. Um, but having something like this, you know, on your person, uh, in the house, electricity goes out, uh, you know, you need to find where the candles are and that that's great. You can use it in a protective role, uh, variety of uses. And it doesn't, they don't cost all that much. Mm-hmm. If I blast somebody in the face with this, with the light, you know, you go, oh, that's really bright. 
but there's no damaging effect. Yep. Um, but I can use it to, like I say, create opportunities for me to do other things mm-hmm. if need be. Okay, so that's something that people should have at the very least in the home, maybe even keep it on their person. Yep. And then the other was, this This is goes back to, shoot, this was 10 years ago. I was in a buddy's house in upstate New York, and he had a shotgun on the wall by his bed, mm-hmm. and he had um, slug, buckshot, slug, buckshot, slug, mm-hmm. buckshot. Mm-hmm. His theory was every other man sure. come, come at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a shotgun. Is that how you would suggest loading it or just go all buckshot or all slug? Or how would you think about that? Um, again, everybody's situation is a little bit different. The slug, buckshot, slug, buckshot, uh, really good combination. Uh, we also have to be in tune with what's our house made out of, where are other people in the house, uh, what's my marksmanship ability, uh, because if we have, you know, buckshot has a pattern. Mm-hmm. So if we get outside of, say, that person, if we're legally justified to use it again, going back to that, um, and one of those misses them, you know, if we have a, a shoot-through or if we have a catastrophic miss, say, especially with a slug, you know, where are our kids in relation to where shooting? So it goes back to that universal safety uh, rules that we go by all the time of, you know, be sure your back's up, what's beyond it, what's around it, what's in between you and that that threat or target, depending on what the circumstances are. Because um, if it goes through, where's it going to go? Um, so we, we look at our house, where we live, uh, what happens if this continues to keep going, where is it going to go, is it going to hit anybody? And that'll kind of dictate, you know, what our load is going to be. I see. You know, okay. rural areas, um, you know, like it sounds like that's where your buddy was. You all were rural then? At the time, it was kind of in the country. Okay. Yeah. Um, might be, you know, and if his marksmanship is good and and uh, he deems it it's good in the house, then, yeah, good good setup. Uh, maybe all buck might be one. Maybe it okay. might be all slug. Uh, you know, really just depends on, on you analyzing that situation that you're in. Okay. Better marks person could go more slug focused. Sure. Less accurate. Go buckshot, particularly mm-hmm. if there's not issues with kids on the other side of the, the threat, maybe. Yep. Okay. And I mean, that's, I think something too, when we're talking, especially home defense, uh, whatever it is, whether it's a, a pistol or a rifle or a shotgun, uh, and regardless of caliber is in our homes, there isn't much things that will stop bullets, mm-hmm. you know, maybe around the door frames, mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, a dresser, refrigerator, bookshelves, things like that. But, you know, just walls in that, we're going to have overpenetration. Yep. Um, so as we're analyzing and thinking about, hey, if I have to move to a threat, you know, where are they potentially going to be? Uh, and what I mean by that is like, you know, where's your front door set up? Where's your back door set up? Where's your garage door set up? Where do we think that they're going to move? You know, by I've done my research and I know statistically when people come into homes that this is where they go. So if I have to engage somebody, uh, where am I going to engage them? Where is that in relation to the other people that are in, in the house? Mm-hmm. Do you know where people tend to go when they get in the home? So from, you know, the research that I've done and, and for what, um, you know, I teach in classes is uh, about 60% of people uh, that are breaking into homes come in the front door. Uh, they go straight to the bedroom, especially if they're looking for your stuff. Okay, so somebody's coming to, to burglarize your home. Uh, Because we tend to keep things in our bedrooms, you know, in sock drawers and things like that. 
And uh, when they're coming in for stuff, normally they're in your home for about uh, about three minutes. That's it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now it could be a little bit more, a little bit less, depending each year. It's a little bit different, and as things change, um, like I said, there's a difference. So home invasion is anybody that's in your home that that you haven't invited. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, somebody that is gonna is a burglar that's coming into your home. They they want your stuff. So generally, they don't want to want you there. Um, somebody that's coming to rob you or what most people put into, you know, actually term home invasion. Uh, yeah, they want your stuff, but also there's some sort of ill intention there. Now that can kind of change things again, still a lot of times coming in the front door and then they think of where, where are you if they have ill intent? Um, you know, if they come in in the middle of the night, where are you going to be? You're going to be in your bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, where's your front door in relationship to your bedroom? Uh, I always tell people and think about like, where's your front door, uh, in relation to where your kids are at and where are you with that front door and how can we get between, you know, where a threat might come in and the people that we care about, because that might cause me then to maneuver, to get between that threat and them, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes we have to make some sacrifices, you know, for the people that we care about to make sure that they're protected. Mm -hmm. So, um, but as we're doing this analysis and this threat assessment and we're do, playing this what-if game around our home, these are all things that we kind of think about. Yeah, yep. Okay, is there anything else that people need to be having in their homes? Okay, so maybe some, some weapons, possibly flashlight. Um, what do you think about, well, I'm, I guess it's a two-part question. Anything else that we should have in our homes? And then also, what do you think about sort of having a, pistol or knives kind of hid throughout the house? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, good question. So, uh, starting at the first part, uh, you know, especially if we're having, having firearms in our home to, to protect ourselves. Uh, but, but even if we don't, uh, having trauma kits and first aid kits in the home, hmm. you know, the first aid kits being for, you know, kids are outside playing, uh, they need band-aids, you know, ice packs, things like that. Um, trauma kits for if something, bad does happen and the ability to to use those you know whether you come take a class with us um you know an armed citizen trauma specific class uh or you go and take you know red cross for state class or whatever doesn't really matter you know as long as you get get some sort of training uh but having some sort of trauma kit that's there uh one of the things that i like to have in the home in addition to that is i'll have trauma kits in all the bedrooms uh, I'll have a big fire extinguisher hanging on the wall inside a closet, a fire blanket, um, flashlight, headlamp, uh, and then, you know, firearms, depending on how we're going to store them. So going into the second part of your question is how we store and how we keep firearms uh, is all dependent on, uh, you know, our particular situation. So, like Callie and I, for example, you know, it's just us. We don't have any kids. Uh, so if we want to have guns, you know, throughout the house or whatever, that's fine because, you know, we're both inundated with safety and training and, and all that. It's what we do. Um, when people come over, if they're not gun people, uh, they all get locked up. Okay. Um, you know, because you're responsible whether, you know, that person knows about guns or not, they come into your home and they pick, you know, find one of those firearms, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be responsible if something happens. Uh, now, as far as like storage or accessibility to them, again, it, it depends. So like you've got kids, um, you know, so that might mean, uh, 
maybe I have some sort of lockbox or some sort of security safe uh, that's easily accessible that I can have a gun in a ready state that when, you know, the alarm goes off at two o'clock in the morning and I get up out of bed and I wipe the sleep out of my eyes, then I go and access the gun if that's part of your system, um, you know, or locked in the safe or, you know, in a drawer or whatever. It all just depends on who you're going to have around. And so one of the things that we talk about uh, in the early classes, especially that novice class, is, is storage. You know, if you're going to choose to have a firearm, think about the other people that are in your house that, that live there, but then also potentially the people that can come in, you know, if you have a get together or friends over and they decide that, you know, oh, they're going to go to the bathroom, but then they poke around in a room or something. What if they come across, you know, this firearm? Uh, do I want that locked up or, you know, other people that I don't know their level of training or I'm not comfortable with them having access to it that they can't get to it. Okay. Okay. Um, is there other things that you think should be in the house or did we cover most of it then? As far as personal protection, I think, uh, I think we pretty much covered most of it and, you know, but then we could also, uh, you know, go into preparedness. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, go for I it. I want to hear about that too. I want to hear your thoughts on that. So with the, you know, the different things that are, that have been going on, you know, the storms that we've had, um, they've affected us also. Uh, we were out without electricity here recently for a couple of days. And, and for us, it wasn't a big deal as far as the electricity overall. Um, but like the refrigerator and the freezers in particular, yeah, you know, multiple freezers, all kinds of meat in there. <laughs> we're real scared. <laughs> were we going to be able to keep that or was it going to go bad? Um, so for us, it, it was really a catalyst and we've been talking about it of, uh, we're going to get a whole house generator. Uh, just because it's becoming more prevalent where, you know, we're having power outages. It affected us over Christmas uh, with the rolling blackouts and that uh, our pipes burst. Oh, yeah. Oh, Christmas, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve day. No way. Yeah. Oh, man, what a bummer. Yeah. And that's something I don't hear about nearly as often in Tennessee. I'll say that upstate New York, man, we had some apartments and it just gets so cold. Yeah. It, I mean, one to three pipes would burst every winter. It was just, it would just happen. Yeah. Um, but down here, you don't hear of it quite as often. No, that's a bummer. That I mean, was an unusual be, cold snap. It can really, like, ruin a lot. Water is destructive. Yep. Yeah, well, we got a whole new kitchen out of it and new floors in the living room. and From the burst pipe? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yikes. Yeah. Well, so. hopefully it wound up being a good thing in the end. Was insurance involved? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. insurance took care of it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it all worked out, but I mean, you know, with that, again, you know, the, the home generator, um, but you know, even, even aside from that, you know, uh, just being a little bit self-sufficient. So I think, uh, you know, going back, COVID was a, was a very good example, you know, with the lockdowns and people were at home and supposed to stay in their homes. And I think it was, it was a shock to a lot of people that, um, in a good way that, Hey, you know, we need to be a little bit self-sufficient. We need to be a little bit prepared. You know, now that things are kind of, you know, for the most part back to normal. Um, I think a lot of people have gone back to, I'm going to stick my head in the sand. Yes. And, but I think there's a small percentage that, you know, kept their head out and realized, Hey, you know, I need to be kind of a little bit self-sufficient. And, you know, if you go on like, uh, 
FEMA's website, you know, it says right on there, every household should have, you know, three days of food and water if something happens, you know, uh, natural disaster or what have you, until they have time to, you know, to get to you with aid. What happens if they can't get to you with aid, though? And if they're telling you at least three days, you know, that should key everybody into, hey, we should be a little bit self-sufficient. So um, I think it's I think it's very important that um, we're prepared enough to take care of ourselves when things don't work the way we're normally used to. You know, ice storms that come in, uh, you know, catastrophic winds like we just had and rain. Uh, what happens if we can't get to the stores? You know, do you have enough food to sustain yourself for, for multiple days? Do you have enough water? Um, you know, at, at Christmas when we had the pipes burst, uh, we were fortunate we got the water back running pretty quick, uh, thanks to a friend of ours. But, you know, we didn't have any water in the house for a little bit. Uh, no plumber was answering the phone calls, mm-hmm. you know, called about a dozen people. It, we only went about a day without water, but how do you flush your toilets? You know, do you have water to drink? And, you know, so so having having water, we, we did. We were fortunate. You know, I keep five-gallon jugs of water, and, you know, we have cases of water that we drink in that. But uh, a lot of people don't have that. And so if you don't have these things that we're normally used to having, how do we sustain, even if it's just for a short period of time? So I think, you know, everybody needs to – and I'm not saying that you got to be completely self-sufficient and go off grid and, and that if you want to do that, that's great, you know, yep. and, uh, and, and I'm all for it, but you know, do you have a little bit of extra food? You know, can you, can you sustain you and your family, uh, you know, for three days a week, two weeks, um, you know, water, same thing. Uh, do you got extra stuff for personal hygiene? Uh, is, you know, blankets, sleeping bags, things if we don't have heat. Do you have heaters or their generators? Um, do you have to rely on the grocery store all the time, or do you have a freezer that, you know, you've went in with some friends and got, you know, part of a cow or, or, or a hog or something like that? And I said, you don't have to get crazy on it, but understand that things do happen, and we can't just call and somebody materialize with food, water, uh you know, medical aid with EMS, the fire department doesn't just show up right away uh, and being somewhat self-sufficient uh, so we can sustain for at least a limited period of time uh, without anybody's help. Yeah. When it comes to preparedness, do you focus at all on being able to travel, go somewhere if you need to go somewhere? So like if something happens, being able to like bug out, if you yep. will. Yep. Um no, not necessarily. Not for me okay. personally. Uh, it, it's great in the, in the books and you know in shows and things like that. Yeah. But I'd rather be at home. Okay. You know, or if I'm out somewhere, how c- do I have enough stuff so I can get back home to where all my other okay. stuff is? Okay, sure. And so, um, you know, having the ability if we're out somewhere uh, and you know, there's a natural disaster or something and, and I can't drive, or even if I can drive, do I have enough stuff in my vehicle to sustain me for the amount of time it takes to get back home where all my stuff is? Um, you know, cause that's kind of our home base. That's at homestead where we've got all these extra things. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious if you would think about that differently if you lived in the city closer to like where, where we are, because 
I have not taken a lot of steps to prepare to like go somewhere. Mm -hmm. But my natural instinct is like being in the city like this, you know, I guess I'm thinking in terms of less now natural disaster and more of like something has really gone wrong. Like maybe there's been an invasion of some kind or nuclear an uprising, including nuclear. Sure. End of Um, the world that we know it type of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Growing up in the country on 15 acres, I would have thought more about like staying there. Sure. But living here in Nashville on one acre, I just feel like that instinct down deep, which is, you know, I should probably also be prepared to go somewhere. Sure. You know, go two hours out of Nashville to a friend's hundred acres or something like that. Like I think about that and I wonder if that's because of being in the city, whereas you're more in the country. And so, you know, that's about as good a scenario as you're going to get. If you have everything there, you want, you'd want to stay there. Sure. Do you think that would be the case? Well, and I think you bring up a good point. You know, the first thing that I would say, you know, driving in here and looking is, um, you know, what type of community do you have here? You know, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, do you get along with your neighbors? Are they kind of the same mindset? Are there people that you can rely on and you can pool things together? Uh, we're, yeah, we're relatively close to the city, um, but we've got this good community here and we can work together and, and you know, help sustain. Uh, if not, or maybe in addition, because like I said, you know, if we have, have our primary plan, we always got to have a backup plan, an alternate plan, an emergency plan, you know, contingencies and all that. Um, if leaving or bugging out, you know, is falls into part of that plan, do you have somewhere to go? Mm-hmm. And then if you do, how are you going to get there? You know, cause I, I have a lot of people, um, you know, that are students that have become friends and, you know, we talk about the, these exact same scenarios. Uh, you know, they either live down here in Nashville or somewhere in the surrounding areas in subdivisions and that, and they're like, well, some, everything, you know, something bad happens. I'm coming to your house. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and we go over this all the time. She's like, stop inviting people over. Cause yeah, that's why you don't know. tell them what you've got. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, having that plan in place that if, you know, something is happening, number one, to be able to anticipate where it's going by, you know, wherever you get your information from, whether it's news sources, which depending on which news outlets you, you watch, it's their narrative. Um, but you get information, you might be able to just drive, you know, just, so just take our house, for example, if, you know, you were going to come to our house, you know, which is an hour and 20 minutes away, uh, you see all this is going on. You call me up like, I don't know. Well, jump in your car. Let's go now, you know, and get there. Um, but but having that plan and know where we're going, mm-hmm. you know, and then how are we going to get there? Because um, then also, you know, you have to think about for you, you've got the whole family. Mm-hmm. How are we going to get all them there? Because you might be able to, you know, grab a pack, if you will, and, and trek across, you know, which would be, you know, an hour or two hour drive, but might be a couple of days if we're, you know, walking, mm-hmm. be able to take a backpack and do it. But will the kids be able to do that? Mm-hmm. How do we wrangle the kids and do that? And so I guess, you know, it really comes down to planning. And then uh, notice when I said earlier, uh, you know, have a willingness, do whatever it takes to protect yourself, protect the people you care about and be a better member of your community. I think that community comes into play here um, you know, and it might be just around the people that you're the people that are around you here, you know, that may be your community, 
but maybe you have ex- an extended community. Like say you got a friend with a hundred acres, you know, have you sat and talked about with them? Hey, if things really go bad, which, you know, if, if you watch the news and see what's going on, you know, you could, the end of the world could happen tomorrow. Yeah, It's not <laughs> a stretch. I mean, it's not quite the stretch. It felt like it was at one point. Sure. <laughs> you know, you know, but it, but if it does, you know, have we talked about this and like, Hey, you know, if these indicators are met, this is the time where, Hey, we're all going to go to this place mm-hmm. and we're going to start enacting that plan of bugging out or whatever moniker you want to put on it to, to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but planning is a huge thing with it and yeah. everybody's a little bit different. Yep. Um, yep. That makes sense. Yeah. I think also having kids being in the city, Again, if it's a natural disaster, then it's all good. You're here. And if I happen to have a home generator, then it's all good. But if there's like some sort of an unrest or something along those lines, like an invasion or whatever, um, you know, I don't think I want to be the only house in the neighborhood that the houses that the lights are lit up on. You know what I mean? Like that Very seems like a, yep. a little bit of a drawn attention. Sure. And uh, And so I don't think it would be that helpful because it feels like you're kind of painting a huge target on your back. Yep. Nope. I I completely agree. You know, and that would fall into then if say you did decide to stay here, you know, for at least a a certain period of time, you know, certain thresholds haven't been met yet where it's like, okay, we got to go. You're right. Staying, staying low profile, low key, or, and I, I think this is an overused term nowadays, but being the gray man, uh, you know, and not letting people know, you know, what you have is, is an important thing. Is that what that means? The gray man? Well, it's using a, in a variety of different, different things. You know, it's uh, blending in, not standing uh, out, sure. gotcha. things like that. That makes sense. You know, in this particular instance, uh, you know, if you have a home generator, um, you know, if you have, you know, chickens and a garden and these things, do we want other people to know? Because if they don't have any of that stuff and they're civil unrest, um, they're like, well, I can just go over here and get it from them. And that could cause us all kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, so, you know, living low key and under the radar until those certain thresholds are met where we're going to go somewhere else. If that's part of our plan, I think is important and not kind of showing, showing our cards to everybody yeah. at the table. We had, uh, we used to build storage sheds and cabins <laughs> and this was probably 2013, 12, 2011, 2010 ish there was like a an upsurge of popularity with the whole prepper movement Mm -hmm. and back then you know shoot that's 12 13 years ago now a lot of people viewed that as sort of uh fringe and sure kind of people being a little bit extreme and some of them bought some of our stuff to put on acreage yeah to have it and they would outfit it with like booby traps and stuff around the whole the thing and had yeah. lots of food and water and and um it was fascinating to me i remember watching some of their youtube videos and kind of being fascinated by it but it did seem more fringe and it's fascinating now because it seems a lot less fringe yep it's like oh okay i see what they were doing now it, sure it there's a real utility to that or, yeah. or there can be yep. it really can be i think so and again you know it's not uh being paranoid it's just being prepared and you know, one of the things that I think is important is, again, is that community, um, whatever that is, like I said, it, you know, it can be a circle of friends. Um, but 
if something does happen, you know, worst case scenario, like you're talking, you know, civil unrest, uh, you know, EMP from, you know, nuclear de- detonation, uh, the grid goes down from a solar flare, whatever the case may be, um, you know, where things get really bad, we can't do it on our own. No matter how many preps you have, uh, no matter how prepared you are, you know, you can have this garage full of food and water and guns and all that. You still can't do it all on your own. You yeah. ha- you need other people. You need a community of like-minded people. Um, and then how do we become self-sufficient? Because, you know, if it is an extended thing, um, again, we can only have so much food. So just, you know, say, for example, you got a year of, of you know 25 year shelf life freeze dried or dehydrated food but if it goes past a year what are you going to do past that yeah 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 you're right yeah someone's efforts on their own can really only get them so far now i'm curious with your experience in the military and being around the world and seeing what you saw and having all the experience and kind of that that um it's a helicopter. <laughs> oh my uh, God! It's, it's not, happening! Yeah, it's yeah. happening! <laughs> it's not often they fly that 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 was loud through the headphones. Um, but um, yeah, sorry, folks. One day we'll have an actual studio where you can't hear a helicopter <laughs> flying over the top. Uh, let's see. I wanted to ask you about if you ever think about the possibility of, or what would you put the probability of foreign actors in our soil being in say, the lifetime of my kids, for example? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yes. Because <laughs> um, I think in a way it's already happening. Uh, if you look at some things uh, that are going on out there uh, with foreign actors, as, as you put it, um, in various communities, especially in the cities, it's, it's already happening. And uh, to the extent of, you know, how far they're going to their reach is going to be and and what's going to happen there is is yet to be seen. But uh, but I think, yeah, that's definitely something uh, that that can that's happening already and could could have some effects on us in the future. Now, when you say that it's already happening, can you give more clarity on that? Uh, so example being uh, and because it's it's made made national news is, uh, you know, China has these uh, police, quote-unquote, police stations in the various Chinatowns in New York and a couple of the other cities uh, where they're there. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how they're how they're terming them, uh, but really they're there policing uh, the Chinese population and ensuring that they're doing uh, what the Communist Party wants them to do. What? Mm-hmm. What? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about this. Yep. Um, and it hasn't hit too much media. I've seen just a few things on it and, you know, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, looking these things up and that, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's various folks that are, that are here and, um, no kidding. Well, so the Chinese are also buying farmland around our nuclear sites. Did you see that? Yep. So that's another, that's another example of it, you know, and, uh, and so we're letting, you know, these people in for whatever reasons. And, uh, you know, they're they're gaining more ground here. Mm-hmm. And the chief medical officer or whatever the title was, the head medical person, I think, at Harvard was a Chinese spy. Mm-hmm. This was like in the last two years, maybe the last year. Yeah. And then also 
Kobe, what was the name of that really old lady in California? Maybe she was a senator or something, Feinstein or something like that? Oh, yeah, Feinstein. Feinstein? Someone, Diane Feinstein. Feinstein. Someone on her staff was a Chinese spy. Mm -hmm. So are you referring to just these Chinese police stations that are popping up in Chinatown in New York City, or or is there others that you're thinking of when you say foreign actors in our soil? That's one of them. You know, that's one of them. We have the, you know, the border crisis that's going on and the amount of people, the influx of people that are coming in, you know, there's, uh, you know, a good majority of them are just trying to get into into the U.S. because they want a better life. Uh, but some of the, you know, terrorist actors that are, you know, in with that, the cartels and all that that are coming in, coming across the border, um, you know, that's been in the news quite a bit lately. And, and we're only seeing a fraction of what's, what's really going on. But I mean, there's some real areas of concern. We just had, uh, you know, a student in the, in the class this last weekend who's moving to Arizona and he's like, the town that I'm living in is right on the border. And, uh, he was talking to, I guess it's somebody that he knows it's with border patrol or uh, one of the federal agencies that's down there. And he's like, if you live in this neighborhood, you'll be okay. Um, cause it's just a path through neighborhood. They want to get to other places. Um, so they're not looking to stop. They're just looking to, to pass through. So you'll be okay there, but don't go over to here. Or don't go over to here. Cheapers. And I mean, if we look at the amount of fentanyl that's coming across the border right now, um, you know, and the, the way the cartels are using that to push people across the border, um, there's just so many things that are going on at the same time uh, that, are, that are concerning, uh, one in and of itself, but then if you put them all together yeah, and... Well, you know, the fentanyl, a lot of fentanyls come from China, too. Mm-hmm. And then they're using the Mexican cartels to get it in, but it's coming from China. Yep. And uh, I have a friend who hunts in South Texas, and this sounds so ludicrous. I don't know if I would believe it, if, but this dude is one of my best friends. I 100% believe him. He would never lie about something like this. But he said, where they're hunting in South Texas, they were told by the landowners down there, if you see people running through, just let them go. He's hunting on land where they have immigrants running through it. Mm-hmm. And you might spot them as you're hunting. Yeah. And this is ludicrous. I've heard I that I don't also. understand how um, something like this can be political. Like how I think the the political part of it can be who should we let in, how many you know, all of that. That, sure. to me, seems like a fine discussion to be had. But we should know who's coming in, and we should control it. Like, I don't understand how it can be political, or you can have any political opinion on, no, we should just let whoever wants to come in, come in, and we don't know if they're coming in, or who's coming in, or how many of them are coming in. That how that makes no sense. Right. Like, yeah. that's not even, now it needs to come out of the political realm. Like, that's not even a political issue. That's just a basic, this isn't going to work. Right. You know? Like, we need, to, we need to control who comes in and who doesn't and how many. And then politic, politics can be involved with the nuances of that. But we can't just not know who's coming in. Sure. Good grief. Yeah. I mean, there needs to be policies in place, uh, you know, that are that are enforced that these are the rules. If you want to come in, that's fine. You know, we, we want to let people in. I mean, that's what this country is, is built off of. 
but you have to meet these requirements. We have to know who is coming in, not just a, a free for all coming across yeah. the border and you get to go wherever you want. And or, the politicians can argue about what those roles should be. Sure. I'm fine with that. I don't really know if I even care where they wind up as long as it's a smart people on both sides arguing about it. Yep, absolutely. But you can't just have a free for all. Mm-mm. Good grief. It's so absurd. Yeah. I think that um the the two concerns that I have when it comes to unrest is or invasion or anything like that is if we continue to be this incompetent at top level federal government at some point there's going to be foreign people on our soil that's going to be a problem for you and I and the rest of regular american citizens sure then it's going to be our problem absolutely because it was so grossly incompetent at the high level for such a long period of time i mean come on it's just common sense like if you're just incompetent for a long enough period of time there's going to be a problem and then the other thing i think about is the trust of the American citizens has been so deteriorated. Like we can't trust mainstream media anymore. Really, it's, it's it appears that way. Sure. And then if you get that lumped in with the government, and that lumped in with the technology companies like Facebook and Twitter, because with the Twitter files we now see the FBI and the CIA are at Twitter headquarters all the time, as they are with Facebook. It's just mm-hmm. the agreement they have. Sure. And then you get. You get all of these, you know, some would lump in big pharma with that. You get all of these kind of the elites in power working together. If that goes on long enough where the regular people perceive that they are not out for our good anymore, and that gets exaggerated and exasperated even more over time and more trust gets lost and more power gets used for their benefit and not for ours, then at some point there's going to be an issue between common people and the few people in power too. Sure. I think that, you know, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. I'm no expert here, but it seems to me like the news media wants to position us right versus left. That's all we hear about right versus left, right versus left. That I think works a lot better online when you actually in the day to day of people's lives, I think they care a little less about right versus left than the people in power would like to believe because if they can keep us going right versus left, then they can control us. Yeah. You know, basically they can keep it, they can keep us deflected away from them. Well, and but I think, I think the issue is going to be in time. It's not going to be right versus left. It's going to be regular people versus the people that are abusing their power. Sure. And those are the two scenarios I see gross incompetence, at top level leader. Then we're going to have other foreign people and we're going to have a problem or abuse of power. And we're also going to have a problem. I mean, this is why this country was founded to begin with. And it seems to me like if we don't have some corrections in some places here along the way, then we're going to, there's going to be a whole lot of people feeling somewhat similar to how they felt 250 years ago or 200 years ago when this country was founded. And what's going to happen then, you know, is, is this, are the people with those spirits just, are they all gone? Or is there some people left with that spirit that are going to have enough at some point? And, you know, then then I don't know what happens, but it's not just going to be business as usual. Well, and I think you're right. You know, the uh, the media 
in whatever form that is, whether it's, you know, news or social media or that, um, you know, they're driving a narrative. And, and I think you're absolutely correct where they're putting this emphasis on a, on a split, a dividing of the country between left and right, um, you know, liberal versus conservative. And, you know, really it shouldn't be that, you know, regardless of what political affiliation you have, it should be, you know, what are your beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, um, for the people, by the people, you know, there are elected officials that are supposed to be our voice, uh, you know, saying and, and doing the things that, that we want them, their constituents want them to do. And, and it's been anything but that for the most part. I mean, I think you see there, there are certain people, you know, that are within politics and within the government and, and higher levels that haven't forgotten how they got where they're at and, you know, the people that got them to where they're at. Um, but by and large, I think a lot of it, like you said, is, you know, you have this separate elite that's here. And I mean, we've heard before, you know, different, different politicos up there that saying, well, my constituents say this, but they don't really know what they're talking about. So this is what I'm going to do. And I think people are getting fed up with that. And we, we might not see it on those various, you know, media platforms or media systems that are out there uh, because they're pushing a certain narrative. But I think by and large, a lot of people are like, well, hold on a second. You know, this is what we believe and this is what we're looking for. We don't really care what affiliation you're with. We want you to push the agenda that, you know, that we want as the American people. Mm-hmm. And, and if that doesn't happen, something's going to gonna break. Yes, I totally agree. I think people are getting a little fed up with being looked down upon and being, you know, I think it does seem to be like the perception of, I think, media and and also those in power can, can be the, like, we're just a bunch of dumb people, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we need to be told what to do because we're all so dumb. Sure. You know, we're getting tired of, like, being looked down on and being belittled and taken taken for granted, you know? I mean, this is one of the things that I love about podcasting too because, you know, the general consensus was, you know, we all have just such short attention spans, Mm -hmm. you know? We can only take, like, we only have, like, three to five-minute attention spans. Sound bites. Sound bites. That's all the American people can handle. Their attention is so little. And then now the biggest podcast on the planet is Joe's podcast who does three-hour episodes. You know, it just flies in the face of that completely. Yeah. Um. Look, I mean, there, there's plenty of dumb people. I'm probably one of them. But there is a lot of well-informed, well-intentioned, very, very bright people. I mean, the average person is pretty pretty dang smart. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of them. So it's like we're not, we're not all dumb enough that you can just do whatever you want and we're going to go along with it forever. I mean, these were things where I think even like five, six, seven years ago, I was hearing rumblings about, but I did kind of pass it off a little bit, you know, but now I'm not so sure. Like I do have kids and, you know, do I think in my lifetime, you know, there's something going to be going on on this soil? I I, I don't know. But, but in the span of my kids' lifetimes, if we continue on this trajectory, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's not empires have risen and fallen since forever. Sure. That didn't magically get turned off nope. somehow in the last dozen of years, in all of the thousands of years of human histories or 
you know, thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands, whatever it is. Like it, there's nothing magical about this moment where all of a sudden empires don't rise and fall anymore. Well, and I think with that too is, you know, it's a progressive thing. And like you said, you know, four, five, six years ago or whatever, you, you just kind of, you know, shrugged it off. Um, but I think that's how we're getting to where it's at. Because, I mean, if you look at, you know, where the country has been, uh, you know, going back in history and, you know, I'm, I'm not really good at history, but I really like it. Uh, you know, if we start thinking about the 20s, 30s, and the 40s, um, you know, the urbanization of society, pulling people out of the rural areas and bringing them into, uh, you know, urbanized society and the reliance then on government, you know, that we need help with this, the New Deal, things as we progress forward. And they become the norm. And then, you know, as you go, so one thing that they do, it's like, this is ultimately what we want to do. Um, but we're going to do this little thing first. And people might complain about it a little bit, but after a while they're like, ah, that's really not that bad. Mm-hmm. So it's okay and it becomes the norm. And then that just leads to now we can do this other little thing and this other little thing that continue to then get to their end objective. Yes. And I think that's what's happening is, you know, where they're, they're pushing things and seeing what they can get away with. And when people push back a little bit, they, they back off some until they are like, this is kind of the, the normal, and now we're going to push it a little bit more. Yep, 100%. And one example, one recent example of that is, you know, it made the news recently that the energy department's official findings maybe is that COVID probably did come from the lab in Wuhan, mm-hmm. but they're saying that with low confidence. And then the FBI agrees, but and maybe another one or two, but then another agency or two is saying they don't really know. But the headline was, you know, the... The Department of Energy, based on their assessment, you know, COVID did come from the, the Wuhan Institute of Viro- Virology, which was something you couldn't say like two years ago. It You were like an extreme right-winger if you said that. Right. And uh, so now they're saying that it probably did come from there based on their assessment, but they're saying with low confidence. What they didn't say is that they were never going to say this all along. The reason they're saying that is because it got subpoenaed. Mm-hmm. Do you know that? They got subpoenaed and they had to bring the information out. Otherwise, they were just going to sit on it. Yeah. So it's like they leak this stuff very carefully and they they have these ridiculous little taglines to it. Like, we think it was this, but we're saying it with low confidence. Like, come on. Like, it's that type of thing where, you know, I was just uh, sort of in a paranoid state of mind maybe. Or maybe I was just seeing things for the way they really are for a second. But I was talking with my wife recently about how... You know, sometimes it does feel like we're in this big, big sort of simulation where where they just have their hands on all of the levers. Like, all right, they want us traveling more, so they rate, they lower fuel prices. Now they don't want us traveling quite as much, so they raise the fuel prices. Now grocery goes up a little bit more, so we're eating different types of things. And now we're putting this type of uh, therapeutic in our body. And now we're... now. Too many people are buying homes, so now they raise the interest rates on us. And now, okay, now they want us buying homes again more, so they lower the interest rate. It's like everything is controlled. Yeah. I mean, there is very little. We like to think like we're more just sort of free market, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot of free market left. I mean, most of the things are being controlled. I mean, when you have people living paycheck to paycheck, you can entirely control their lives through the monetary system. Sure. And they do. So whether that's ill intent or whether it's just what they have to do to make this world go round, 
I'm not smart enough to know the difference, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. So, or things like, you know, um, this is going on, you know, COVID lockdowns, people aren't working that now we're going to give you a tax incentive, a tax rebate. Mm-hmm. So we're relying on them to, you know, to get money. And I'm not saying that, you know, when ours came in the mail that we didn't cash it. And, and I cashed a it. check, man. Yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, so many people rely on that. And then you start looking at that. And that's the thing again, where, hey, we got you here. We're going to give you this little incentive. We're going to, we're going to take care of you right now because it's hard times. Mm-hmm. And now things are back to normal. But, oh, no, you still need help. So, yeah, we're here, but you're relying on us. But this is what we need from you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And someone made a point recently that, you know, pandemics are not a new thing. Mm-mm. So the founding fathers, they knew about pandemics when they wrote up our laws. Yeah. And there's not a, an exception in there for pandemics. Um, which I thought was a, a fairly interesting point. Yeah. And then, too, I think, you know, look, I don't – it It seems – all right. So it, it also seems increasingly clear that this last pandemic came from the science community who was then telling us how exactly to navigate through it. And so we're supposed to believe the very, very people that it came from and oh, by the way, what they were working on had no benefit. No benefit. I mean, the former head of the CDC under oath is saying there was no benefit for what they were working on. So they're working on something extremely dangerous. Mm. Plenty of people died because of it. During the course of their research, they couldn't come up with anything that actually helped us when this thing did happen. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, they're still doing it. Yep. It's like, And then we just, you know, there's so much in the news cycle, we all kind of just move on and forget about it and well and it's it's a new thing that comes up you know i mean uh you know with covid as an example uh you know that was you were inundated everything you know you couldn't turn on the television without you know seeing hospitals and and getting briefings and doing that but then notice it all kind of went away and now the next greatest thing is is in the news headlines and all these things are still going on but you don't hear about them right in that yeah. narrative and now you know tomorrow it's going to be the next day you know now it's the you know war in the ukraine mm-hmm. and and it's this you know because again it's being controlled uh you know the information that you get you know if that's yeah you know because the majority of people i think you know they turn to news on. i know we do you know we watch the local news for the weather and to see what's going on and crime reports and that and uh you know but i watch the national news too um and but that's it's very controlled you got to yeah. be very careful with watching that and yeah. what you take at face value and what yeah. you're like i'm going to look into this a little bit more totally you have to understand they're they're pushing a narrative it just is what it is and so if you're aware of that and you run it through your filter fine you yeah. know fine but you do have to understand now in today's day and age they're pushing a narrative sure you know, so all right shane um well, this was fun man yeah Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Any, anything else you want to say in terms of self-defense, home defense, preparedness in general? And I think, uh, you know, just to kind of bring it all back, and I've said it before, is, you know, we don't we don't want people to be paranoid. We just want you to be prepared. We want people to be able to take care of themselves, whatever the situation is, whether it's a lethal force encounter, you know, down on Lower Broadway or, or somewhere in Nashville, or, uh you know, there's a, there's a snowstorm or ice storm where you're stuck in your house and you're without electricity. Uh, we want people to, to be prepared to be able to take care of themselves and not have to rely on somebody else, uh, at least not initially, you know. 
because uh, when you dial that 911, nobody's going to materialize. You've got to be your own first responder initially, and you have to be prepared enough to be able to do that and take care of yourself and, and take care of the people that, that you care about, be that good member of community. And, uh, and then, you know, at the end of the day, I said, uh, being prepared helps you just live your life mm-hmm. and, you know, not being, not being paranoid, um, but just being able to live your life and, and go about things and know if, if something happens that, that we can take care of it and we can take care of ourselves, um, you know, until we can get some help. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right. Well, thank you again for being on the website is personal survival solutions. Yep. Dot com. And you guys have an Instagram account also. They can check you out there. Is that also Personal Survival Solutions on Instagram? Yep. Instagram, Facebook, and uh, LinkedIn are all at, at Personal Survival Solutions. Okay. So people can check you out. They can travel in from any part of the country and get lessons with you guys. And um, all right, good. Well, thank you all for listening. Bye. Try to catch me howling at the moon. Ooh, ooh, ooh.